What's up, my dudes? It's a vigorous Q&A again. I got a new microphone, uh, but the only thing I still need to connect is the cloud, cloud lifter. But the Shure, what is it, SM7B and the Wave XLR and all the cables and shit, they're all connected. So let me know how the audio sounds. Hopefully it's a little bit better. I'm using crisp technology. Um, so maybe the breathing is still a bit off, but at least it tends to cut off the audio from the air conditioning and the fan and the laptop. So hopefully the audio quality is absolutely fantastic right now or way better than it was, especially the internal microphone of this laptop. Um, I spent the entire day trying to set this up. So let me know if everything sounds good. I still have to put this cloud lifter in, which we'll probably do next weekend because I'm still waiting for two more cables of XLR, a little bit high quality, because it seems that these cables pick up a little bit of interference, but I think that the crisp, um, let's see, artificial intelligence is smart enough to kind of pick that up. So again, uh, for the two viewers that are here right now, please let me know how it sounds. And uh, in the meantime, just a quick shout out down below, you can find the link to Dave Tate's Elite FTS uh, Table Talk episode, uh, Table Talk episode 243, which we recorded the Monday after the Swiss Symposium. So it's pretty much a month old, but they uh, had to release it a little bit late because they had so many podcasts uh, backed up. And then the Mark Bell Power Project episode uh, 1010 was released. Also linked down below. And then tomorrow, Sunday or Monday, I'm not entirely sure, uh, Nell Nyga's uh, Transparent podcast will release as well, which we recorded, let's say, a week ago on Friday before I flew back home. So three podcasts dropping quite soon and a lot of podcasts lined up. Hopefully we can get one out the door next week on this YouTube channel. Um, good things are coming. Now, let's put it that way. So let's see. Let's just get started with the questions. Jake. How's the audio? Let me know how it is. Let's see. Jake Alpabam asks, Hey, Steve, regarding the mood improvement and giddy feeling from growth hormone, any ideas about the mechanism that causes that? Um, actually, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it could be upregulation of uh, serotonin and dopamine, but I haven't really looked into that uh, to that extent yet. So it could be just simply sedation, right? When you feel a little bit sedation um, or sedated, just like you feel from uh, sleep aids, or alcohol or weed or kratom, you feel a little bit giddy and good feeling. Uh, maybe it's cortisol suppression. That could be the case. I mean, we do know that growth hormone suppresses cortisol quite a bit. So maybe that is uh, the mechanism, but I haven't really looked into it that far. Uh, audio is great. Okay, that's good to know. I haven't really looked into that mechanism uh, directly. So uh, if anybody knows, please fill us in in the comment section. And otherwise, it might be interesting to include that in the uh, you know growth hormone deep dive, which eventually takes place in the membership section, which I just started outlining what I need to do for the membership section. And uh, that's going to be one hell of a ride. Yeah. All right. Next one. Henry Pham asks, hey, Steve, why do people taper down a post-psychotherapy dosages towards the end of a post-psychotherapy. Have you ever noticed eye floaters in your post-psychotherapies? So no, I never really got eye floaters from Clomid. Of course, I got the, um, you know, the weird mental effects where you feel very estrogenic, very emotional, uh, very easy to cry during movies. Um, yeah, so... You know, it just it just comes with the territory. Again, I don't think that post psychotherapy drugs, selective estrogen receptor modulators, are very sustainable. So I wouldn't run Nolvidex, Clomid, or Roloxifene and Clomiphene, one or one combination of the other, um, for too long, longer than is required. 
to uh, restore hypothalamic pituitary testes axis uh, functioning. And the reason why we taper these drugs off is because in the beginning, you need more of estrogen blockade and estrogen suppression from Novidex, for example. So you need more of this estrogen blockade to really get the pituitary and the hypothalamus to restart the secretion of gonadotropin releasing hormone and downstream from the pituitary luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. So what the Novidex does, one of its metabolites, norandoxifene, it um, acts as an aromatized inhibitor and, and reduces the, the conversion of testosterone into estradiol. So even though testosterone levels are low, it will still convert into estradiol and DHA converting into testosterone into estradiol as well. So if you inhibit the conversion into estradiol, then this negative um, effect that estradiol will have on your HPTA is now further blunted by the high dose of serums that you're taking. So you're blocking the receptors and serum estradiol levels are low. And in the beginning, you want that. You want basically complete estrogen uh, blockade and estrogen deficiency. So your hypothalamus and pituitary will produce the most, most amount of gonadotropin hormone, releasing hormone and luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone for your testicles to start producing testosterone again. Now, once testosterone levels come up, in the meantime, that your serum dose is high, the um, conversion is also going to take place unless you have Novidex in the picture when it's metabolite nor endoxifin to inhibit or prevent the conversion. So in this sense, even though testosterone is slowly coming up, estrogen will still stay suppressed. But after a while, you don't want that, of course, because estrogen helps with follicle-stimulating hormone receptor sensitivity. So you don't want that too long, right? You do want to, uh, to induce spermatogenesis later on. So in the beginning, you have the Novidex and the Colomit reasonably high for LH and FSH levels to come up. Then you taper that down. You do this in a step-by-step -step fashion so your pituitary and your hypothalamus can kind of get used to this reduction of estrogen blockade. And then maybe with two or three increments, your estrogen levels, of course, will come up because you get less of this aromatase inhibiting effect from the norandoxifin metabolite and less of an estrogen blockade. And then over two-week increments, your pituitary and hypothalamus kind of gets used to that, but LH and FSH secretion should stay somewhat elevated. Again, time will tell, right? If your pulse psychotherapy is successful, ideally, you let all of the steroid hormones decline first, and it could take four weeks, six weeks, maybe even 18 months if you're using nandrolone. We don't know how suppressive the metabolites of nandrolone are on the HPTA. It hasn't been investigated. So if you want to play it safe, um, I would do TRT for six months and then start your post-cycle therapy after stopping the TRT, uh, let's say six weeks before starting the PCT. Yeah, I detail all of this in the PCT videos and PCT ebooks. All right, what's next? Alvaro JD, the timestamps guy. What's up, buddy? What causes the increase in hunger by boldenone as reported by many people? Can it be the boldenone itself, the increase in dosage, since boldenone tends to be used at higher dosages or something else? Well, it's probably kidney failure, um, as I documented in that two-part video about boldenone. And kidney failure can make you hungry as well, because now you start to lose all the protein in your urine. Actually, that's not true. I'm trolling. <laughs> I'm trolling here. Um, it could be that boldenone uniquely has a special effect on your metabolism. I mean, you know, when you go into testosterone, of course, your androgenic burden goes up. You maybe free up more thyroid uh, hormones by uh, reducing thyroid binding globulins. But the same can be said for Anivar and the same can be said for many steroids, uh, potentially including boldenone, but I haven't investigated that. Eventually, we'll get to that part. Again, part of the membership 
uh, website where I just go restart the steroid knowledge from a bottom up. Um, so it will take a fuckload of videos to get that done, but it will be done eventually. Um, so for now, I would say that you just get more androgens in your system on top of your testosterone. Hopefully you're using testosterone as a base when you add the baldrone in. And then of course, let's say you run 300 tests, 300 baldrone or 600 tests, 600 baldrone, or I don't know, 900, 1200 tests and 900, 1200 baldrone. Since you're increasing the test of baldrone both in this context for favorable estrogen levels, um, your increments go up, you know, double, right? For the test in the baldenone, and then your androgen burden goes up quite a bit. So that means from the androgen burden, you get more hungry. I mean, if you're on two grams of test, you're hungry. If you're on a, a gram of test and, and 300 or 700 milligrams of trimbalone, you're hungry. And with baldenone, people tend to ramp up the dosages a little bit more. I mean, dosages of 600, 900, 1200 milligrams baldenone are not unheard of. Um, and that is considered still a, a good dose for the off season. So more anabolic loads, uh, increasing the hung hunger. And of course, if your metabolism increases potentially by freeing up more thyroid hormones, by reducing thyroid binding globulins, then uh, metabolism speeds up even further and hunger goes up more. But I'm not entirely sure if boldenone upregulates your B vitamins, which helps with metabolism as well, or if boldenone particularly speeds up uh, thyroid production besides freeing up the thyroid hormones from the thyroid binding globulin, which is being lowered. I'm not entirely sure. I'll get to that part eventually. I've, uh, I'm going to break down the effects of steroids on each organ individually. Again, that's going to take a long ass time. All right, next one from Darius. Darius asked a boatload of questions. So Jake, we'll get to your questions soon. Uh, Darius was the only one who asked uh, questions on Patreon. I don't know what happened. I, I went on holiday and all the Patreon members left. Not that they canceled their memberships, but it seems that everybody's on their own holiday now as well. So Darius, we're going to get to all your questions right now. Uh, he asks, optimal blast to cruise ratio. Should a blast go on as long as blood work is good or should it be cut short for a certain amount of number of weeks, even if blood work is good? Um, well, if you're getting results and you're having fun and your blood work is good, I would say that the blast should continue. But again, you don't have to start your blast with a, uh, a blast dose that would blast your socks off and your kidneys into kidney failure and your liver into prolapsing from your asshole. You can start with a moderate <laughs> It's just visualizing that. Oh no. Um, <laughs> yeah. So back to the topic. Uh, so. You can start your blast at a low dose, which is a little bit higher than your cruise dose. So if you're cruising on a TRT dose or a TRT for bodybuilder dose with 250 milligrams testosterone per week, you can start your cruise at 375 tests, right? And then 500 and then 750 and then 1000 and 1250. And you can slowly build it up. So let's say the first six months of your blast are kind of moderate. You're under a gram of steroids combined. I would consider that moderate for bodybuilding purposes. And again, if you're a fitness enthusiast, maybe 500 milligrams is moderate. And if you've got 500 tests and GH and insulin, IGF-1 and, and a couple, um, you know, ancillaries on top, then of course, 500 tests sounds moderate, but your entire cycle, your entire blast is not moderate anymore because you're uh, utilizing so many different compounds. So moderate is entirely up to you. Let's say moder moderate, your blood work parameters are still good. And then as the cycle, the blast proceeds, um, at one point you get into the, those dosages where results are really good, but your blood work kind of starts to deteriorate. And then even if you deploy all the health supplements and the ancillaries and the CPAP machines and the best practices for sleep quality and um, 
the condoms and all that stuff, right? You're, you're completely um, encapsulated in, um, let's see, a preventative measure, <laughs> measures, um, and your blood work is still not good, but the results are still good. Then maybe you stretch that period for four weeks, right? Where you're in poor state of health, but the results in the gym, the gains and the vascularity and the size and the personal best are all still leveling up. Maybe you tolerate that for a month where your blood work is absolute shit, but the results are still good. Uh, and then you throw in the towel. That's what I would say. And usually that last month of the blast where your blood work is shit, uh, an anadrol or superdrol or another strong uh, oral is deployed to really push you over the edge of, um, you know, borderline bad health and then getting into terrible health, basically, where you're looking at your blood work, you're like, kind of fucked yourself there. Time to, throw, time to throw in the towel, taking out all the orals and the trembloni sandwich and lowering the insulin and lowering the growth hormone and going back to a cruise dose. It could be 150 tests, 200 tests, 250 tests, maybe 300 tests if you're a 300 pound beast, but let's be honest, most guys are not. That's quite rare, to be honest. So you you go back to a cruise dose and then you cruise for as long as you need to get healthy. And then you need a couple months of your blood work to be good while cruising. You can still uh, make good progress if your food intake is high but what i would recommend most people is just to get lean during their cruise because now you reduce the load of steroids you reduce the load of uh, training volume you reduce the load of uh, training intensity and and of overall uh, lifting weights right because you get less strong and then you reduce the the load of the performance enhancing drugs you clean out your body gets healthy your joints get a little bit less sore uh, the inflammation goes down, whether that's in the joints or systemic or the intestinal tract. So you kind of clean out from all angles. And then you start ramping up the dose again after you've had a certain amount of months where your blood work parameters are nice and solid. And um, you still feel comfortable that your gains are somewhat sustained. And even though your muscularity goes down and your strength goes down, um, the overall performance isn't down so much that... Um, the first increment or two of your upcoming blast is not able to restore all of the strength and the muscularity and the freakiness and the overall size that you had at the end of your blast. Now, sounds very complicated. That's why we have coaches. <laughs> yeah, not me. I retired. But plenty of good coaches do something similar along these lines, and they will get you the results uh, over consecutive cruises and blasts. I would say after five years, you should look pretty damn good. All right, Darius also asks, opinion on a bromelanotide vilisi used in men for libido. So that's a PT141 for the uninitiated. Bromelanotide vilisi is the brand name, which I've never been able to find anywhere. I would love to try it. I've heard anecdotal reports of people getting vilisi through a compounding pharmacy anti-aging clinic in the United States. Um, but I never was able to try it myself or got a sample or found it somewhere on the underground labs. It's always PT-141. And I think PT-141 works great if you use it intermittently. It seems that the first time you use it, it doesn't really work um, fast. It takes about six to eight hours to build up. But then with consecutive use, it works within an hour, especially if you combine it with oxytocin and some X, which are all documented in the you know uh, best practices for maximum libido for him and her. I have several videos about that. Uh, just type in libido on my channel and you should probably get that um easily uh you know recommended through the search algorithm and uh, i think the dosages are anywhere between 0.1 to 1 milligram and it highly depends on the individual so i used a one milligram pt1 for one 
which uh, gave me raging boners, I'll be honest. Uh, but it also gave me a raging skin tan. And that raging skin tan was a little bit muddy. So if you go back to like 2021, when I had that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and I was still wanted to run some experiments, a PT one for one was on the to-do list. And then my skin got a little bit muddy. Now, also because I don't really go out to tan. And uh, of course, I was using, using glutathione. So you get mixed signals of pigmentation. The PT-141 is telling your pigmentation to go up through the melanocortin receptors. And then uh, glutathione is reducing your pigmentation um, because that's what it does. I'm not entirely sure how that works, but it does work. I mean, look at me. I'm on a boatload of glutathione uh, for fertility purposes. So um, feel free to experiment with it. You might have to do a couple of days of one milligram, and then uh, you can reduce the dose to half a milligram or 0.1 milligram even, depending on your mileage and your erectile quality. Next one, Darius asks, uh, does training with higher loads closer to one rep max build more muscle density than normal eight to 12 rep training? Isn't this just total bro science? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I don't know, because most of the bodybuilders with a lot of muscle density and maturity, they train within the 6 to 12, 15, 20 rep range. And when in doubt, uh, look at the guy with the most muscle maturity and the most muscle density, Ronnie Coleman. He did high volume, high frequency and high rep ranges. But then once in a while, he threw in a two rep set. So basically, um, in the words of Jordan Peters, not Jordan Peterson, but Jordan Peters, one of the strongest uh, Caucasians on the planet when it comes to higher rep ranges, uh, get strong in all rep ranges. <laughs> so you get strong in the four to six rep range and the six to 10, uh, right? And the eight to 12 and the 10 to 15 and the 12 to 20 rep range, get strong in all rep ranges. And then at one point you look like a freak, right? So that's uh, what I will do when I get back on the gain train. There's also asks, uh, do you really have to do a post psychotherapy for growth hormone when discontinuing it? No, that was just a giant troll. Um, but of course, you know, the MK677 crowd once in a while, you need to put them in a place and give them a little bit shock value. So that's why I mentioned that you need to fast for five days after a cycle of MK677 to restore, um, you know, uh, a growth hormone secretion. Uh, it's mostly for insulin sensitivity purposes, but it's actually not required. So. Will it not just come back within a couple of days uh, without all the secretagogues? Maybe a one day fast uh, will be enough. Okay, so yeah, it was a total troll. Um, when you stopped, stopped the MK677, uh, let's say within 36 hours, at most 48 hours, your IGF-1 levels will come down. So now you reduce the negative feedback from the IGF-1. That would blunt further growth hormone secretion and IGF-1 production downstream from the elevated growth hormone, obviously. Uh, the hunger will go down, uh, obviously, because you're not stimulating the ghrelin receptor. And thus, the uh, somatostatin, which comes up following meals, will come down. So now you have a normal appetite, normal food quantity, normal food volume, uh, reduced caloric intake. So somatostatin should be significantly reduced, but the activation of ghrelin might be reduced as well. So basically, within two days, I would say, normal growth hormone secretion would continue and then you can stimulate that with uh, a couple of the amino acids which one was it uh man i mentioned that in the mk677 video there was one amino acid which was really good and I, 
I completely blank out on it, but just go back to the MK677 video. I list all the growth hormone secreting uh, compounds. Melatonin is a very potent growth hormone secretor. So, you know, uh, maybe fast for two days to restore your insulin sensitivity as the MK677 in the IGF-1 levels and the, uh, um, you know, ghrelin antagonism or ghrelin activation ghrelin receptor activation and the somatostatin levels come down uh, to zero pretty fast so you do fast for two days look into the amino acids which help with growth hormone secretion uh, after the fast obviously and melatonin doesn't really have caloric value so you can take maybe three ten thirty hundred milligrams up to your preference melatonin before bed to uh, stimulate growth hormone secretion quite favorably i think i got Man, when I was doing 30 milligrams of melatonin, how much? I think it was, was it like eight or nine nanograms per milliliter? I'd have to look back on it. Yeah, but melatonin, 30 milligrams of melatonin, even though it made me feel clinically depressed, uh, it did raise my growth hormone levels the next day quite a bit. Darius asks, opinion on cl uh, closed fist training for gripping the bar as hard as possible. This is a neurological drive associated with making a fist stimulate aggression and power. Is more open-handed training, uh, like using fat grips on pressing stupid. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Yeah, I mean, we do have the grip strength training in some scientific studies to check for neurological drive and see if particular models are more effective than others. But how that translates into a real-world application, uh, you're probably off, uh, better off asking somebody who really specializes in uh, that field. So somebody who uh, specializes in uh, training advice, like Mike Isretel, for example, um, he would probably have a video about that. But since we specialize on the safer practices regarding performance-enhancing drugs on this channel, uh, I'm drawing a blank. All right. So I've used fat grips on arm training, fun, get a lot of good pumps in the gym, especially in the biceps. I've used uh, fat grips on back training, um, but made my grip fail. Uh, so especially the heavy weights I was using at the time. So I would not use fat grips for back training, but for bicep training, it's a lot of fun. And uh, now we're not going to make analogies. Let's just skip over that. So uh, additional research might be required for you to get a satisfying answer. <laughs> on that question uh as is there a minimum dose for exogenous insulin that needs to be taken to create the synergistic effect with growth hormone if one takes 30 ius lantus a day isn't that just replacement dose now basal insulin is between 5 to 10 ius per day and even if you take 5 ius uh, or 10 ius of lantus or another uh, long-acting insulin and uh, several different brands then that will complement the insulin that your pancreas already release even in a basal state. So let's say you produce 10 IUs of basal insulin per day and you supplement with 10 IUs lentils on top, then in total you have 20 IUs of insulin acting over 24 hour period. Now, if you start ramping up the dose, um, you might get a blunting effect on the pancreas, but I can't remember reading a study where that was investigated. So you're in my opinion, you complement the pancreas by taking exogenous insulin, assuming you're not a type 1 or type 2 diabetic, obviously. Again, we're taking this for anabolic purposes, not for medicinal purposes, because our pancreas is failing or insufficient when it comes to insulin production. So let's say you produce 10 IUs of basal insulin and you eat uh, 300 carbs. 
then the basal insulin will more than cover it. And probably you're releasing a lot more insulin to cover the 300 carbs that you're eating. Now you start supplementing with Lantus, let's say 10 IUs, you're probably still producing a little bit of insulin with meals on top of the basal insulin that you're producing in the pancreas and the basal insulin, the long acting insulin that you're injecting in the form of Lantus. Um, did I say pancreas before? I think I said pancreas, right? So 10 IUs from the pancreas and 10 IUs from Lantus. Um, and then maybe you produce another 10 IUs uh, intermittently, uh, you know, as the carbs are flowing into your body. Now, if you start taking 20 IUs of Lantus on top of the 10 IUs basal insulin for the 300 carbs that you're eating, you might be breaking net even. And if you go to 40 IUs of Lantus, you probably uh, go hypoglycemic, right? So uh, this is why I always tell people to slowly ramp up the dose of Lantus, um, because at one point there will be a, a dose of diminishing return. And then the basal insulin might still be secreted, so let's say five to 10 IUs, but the Lantus dose is too high for the amount of carbohydrates and overall nutrients that you're eating because you still get a little bit of gluconeogenesis from the protein that you're consuming, obviously, right? That can sustain your blood sugar to a certain extent. So uh, start low and build your way up. And whatever the effective dose is for the amount of food that you're eating, that's the dose that will work for you. That could be five IUs, that could be 10 IUs, that could be 30 IUs, that could be 80 IUs, depending on how much food you're eating and what else you're doing. Right, so you can use Lantus without growth hormone, but you get a better synergistic effect with the growth hormone because growth hormone raises IGF-1. It seems that Lantus uh, raises IGF-1 the most out of all the insulins that is out there. Um, and of course, if you have more IGF-1, you get more insulin sensitizing effect, more nutrient partitioning on top of the Lantus that you're taking, but also more cell proliferation, which requires more nutrients to be shuttled into the cell that is now dividing. Because if you turn one cell into two cells, you need uh, a good amount of energy, right, for ATP synthesis for all the, you know, the machinery to work and then pull the DNA apart and then, uh, you know, fill out, fill in the blanks, <laughs> to put it simply, right? Because when you pull the DNA apart, you have blanks on both sides and that has to be filled in. That takes energy and amino acids. Then the cell needs to kind of close on top of this DNA that's now divided and uh, refilled. And then all the machinery needs to be transcribed again because you get half the machinery, half the protein expression in this cell division process. This requires a lot of energy. So if growth hormone is high, IGF-1 is high, and Atlantis insulin is high, and food intake is high, um, I would say that you get the most synergistic effect. Yeah, and this is why people usually don't grow much when they're in a caloric deficit because the cell division and the cell recovery isn't as optimal even though the drugs are in place. You still need nutrients for that um, you know, entire process to work. All right, here we go. We're getting into the questions. Jake Applebaum, do you think taking anniversary sublingually shortens the half-life and causes it to be cleared from the body faster? Yes, but by how much? I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure. So if you take, let, let's compare, right? You take anniversary sublingually and anniversary uh, orally, and then you have rectally, yeah, but let's not go for the sake of this this segment. Let's not go there. So, if you take it uh, this oral uh, orally, it goes into the intestinal tract. It's that slows the digestion when you have food present or not. And but especially if you take anivar with food, it slows the digestion quite a bit. And if you take it with apple cider vinegar or metformin, it slows it even further. So you have sustained release of the anivar going into your liver first. Now. The intestinal tract has aromatized enzymes which don't affect uh, 
Anivar because it can't uh, convert into estradiol, right? Or methyl estradiol or anything else. So the aromatized enzymes you don't have to worry about. But it does have um, 17 alpha or 17 beta hydroxysteroidehydroxinase enzymes, which will metabolize the anivar already. So now you reduce the bioavailability. You potentially reduce the bioavailability by slowing absorption. And if fiber is in the picture and other medications, it might actually inhibit the absorption over the time that the anivar is passing through your intestinal tract. Right, so now you reduce the bioavailability. Then you reduce the bioavailability further um, by the, the metabolizing enzymes which are present in the intestinal tract. And then you have glucuronidation, which also occurs in the intestinal tract to a very trace amount, but that mostly happens in the peripheral tissue. So that it gets the anivar or the metabolites gets deactivated, basically, marked for excretion. Uh, but there's enterohepatic recirculation and the removal of conjugates and the glucuronidate. So you probably break net even in that aspect, um, unless you're really hammering on the calcium deglucurate and the, what is it called? Uh, the hydrolyzed casein protein, which inhibits those steps. And then the anivar goes into the liver, right? Where it gets metabolized into the hepatocytes potentially. So that's the first pass. So now already the bioavailability is reduced. It goes into the hepatocytes, it's partially metabolized. And then as the hepatocyte is destroyed, the remainder of the anivar goes into the bloodstream and starts activating the androgen receptors. Fingers crossed, please, 24,000 Hail Marys that it takes place. So you can bypass all of these steps by taking anivar sublingually right underneath the tongue. Doesn't reduce bioavailability by breaking down in the intestinal tract or slowing the absorption. Doesn't reduce the bioavailability by breaking down in the liver on the first pass. So now you have 100% of the anivar in your bloodstream right away. Right away. So you don't want to do this when your blood flow is not really, really good. You want to do this directly before a workout, five to 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes before you start working out. Because, of course, the half-life of anivar is based on conventional absorption orally. And uh, was it eight and a half? No, don't quote me on this. Let's consult Wikipedia. Anivar half-life. Let's see. Nine hours. All right. It was not far off. So is that true? 9.4 to 10.4 hours, but the extended to 13.3 hours in the elderly. Okay. So it's, uh, let's say, in the young people, uh, 9 to 10 hours, right, on average. Okay. So that's through conventional oral administration. Now, if you... And it, that's, let's say, over you know, a multitude of hours that is absorbing from your intestinal tract and passing the liver. Now, let's say um, let's say you take it sublingually and you get the, I accidentally the entire dose of anivar sublingually right into the bloodstream within 5 to 10 minutes of sublingual absorption. Of course, the half-life is going to be diminished because you don't get this sustained release from the intestinal tract. You get it acutely sublingually. So I would recommend everybody to do this only pre-workout in a pre-workout context because then the anivar can circulate and uh, is very high likelihood, you know, entropy aside, very high likelihood that the anivar is going to attach and activate the androgen receptors in the muscle tissue that you're training because the blood flow to that muscle tissue is increased and the blood that is uh, going to this muscle tissue that you're training is uh, full with anivar, obviously. So instead of this blood traveling to your prostate or your heart, or your eyes, or anywhere else where you don't really want anivar to work, um, it's going to the, the skeletal muscle, right? And then on the way back from the skeletal muscle, it passes the, you know, the connective tissue and the skin. And that's how the circulatory system works. So you maybe get some additional collagen synthesis in the connective tissue, the tendons, ligaments, uh, cartilage, 
and the skin on the way back to the heart and then it kind of circulates until it all metabolizes so I would say that sublingual absorption shortens the half-life by how much could be 50%, could be 30%, could be, I don't know, 80%. I don't think it's been investigated, um, but it, it should be an interesting topic to do on my very long to-do list of video topics. <laughs> All right, next one. Andreas, heard about Soma Trogan, essentially long-lasting growth hormone. Yeah, I've heard about that. I think it's not FDA approved yet, but they're looking into it. Um, they were undergoing phase one or two clinical trials last time I checked. And if so, what are your thoughts? Um, so this would basically be the same as MK677, right? So I think this is just long lasting growth hormone bound to, um, your growth hormone binding, uh, growth hormone binding proteins, which is actually the truncated version of the growth hormone receptor and can, um, you know, attach to the cell membrane and potentiate some effects. So I think it's going to be working better than IGF-1 LR, uh, IGF-1 combined with IGF-1 binding protein 3, which is uh, IPLEX. I'm not sure if that's still available. Uh, I haven't seen it anywhere, but I was able to find Incrolex, so maybe IPLEX is next. Um, so I do think that somato, somatrogen, if it's bound to growth hormone uh, binding protein, uh, it should be biologically active, but it's just longer lasting in the bloodstream because normally this gets broken down with enzymes unless it's part of binding protein. So testosterone can't be broken down if it's part of albumin or sex hormone binding globulin. And thyroid hormones can't be broken down if they're part of thyroid binding globulin. So if growth hormone can't be broken down if it's bound to a binding protein, same as IGF-1, can be broken down if it's part of IGF brown, uh, IGF one binding protein one two three four five six etc. Um, then it increases the half life, but it can still potentiate its effects through this truncated version of the receptor. So would it be less useful compared to daily growth hormone administration because of the refractory period for growth hormone potentially? Right. I mean, we'll really have to see on what the scientific literature says when this product is released and what the community is going to say, because you bet your left testicle that I will get my hands on it and then we'll experiment with it and see um, if it compares to MK677 from a serum concentration perspective, from an IGF-1 concentration or elevation perspective, and from an overall anabolism slash fat loss perspective, right? And of course, running that experiment one month on MK677 and then one month on somatrogen, um, let's say 30 milligrams MK677 before bed versus two to three IUs of somatrogen before bed, not changing anything to the diet, not changing anything to the uh, the rest of the protocol and the, uh, you know, the training strategy, you know, time will tell. But it does look very promising. And it, of course, you know, if it's a long-acting growth hormone and you only have to inject it once, um, you know, saves you some time. But I think bodybuilders and people in the fitness industry like to inject multiple times per day because you get a little bit of positive affirmation that every injection works with your overall goals. Um, so, you know, people might be missing out. It's like, oh, why am I only doing one shot when I could do, be doing three? And you know how people are. They're start looking into the half-life and the active life of the somatrogen or somatrogon. And um, then they see oh, it's only the half-life is only 12 hours, so I'm going to inject it twice anyway. And then, the, you know, most people inject their growth hormone twice or three times per day already. So what's, what's the fucking point, right? All right, next one. Jake Applebaum. 
I feel the best on a very low uh, carbohydrate diet and supplement with six to 10 grams of sodium plus other electrolytes. Good. Sounds good to me. Uh, adding a GH1 AU causes edema. Am I better off reducing the sodium or reducing the GH? Well, one IU of GH is not that high. Um, I would rather have you switch brands to uh, Nordytropin or uh, Serostim, right? Which don't seem to potentiate that much water retention uh, compared to other growth hormones. But again, growth hormone response is individual. So if the current growth hormone dose at one IU is causing you edema, switch to another brand and keep the dose the same. Because some of the generics out there, they contain antidiuretic hormone or they have impurities which your body is trying to get rid of. And they don't contribute to the overall anabolism, but they do contribute to the side effects. So why don't we go to a growth hormone that causes you less side effects so you don't have to change anything to your sodium intake when I think that 6 to 10 grams of sodium is totally fine if you live in a hot climate and you sweat a lot and you train a lot and your water intake is quite high as well. Um and otherwise, looking to telmosartan or empagliflozin, even though I would say that telmosartan is a little bit more favorable in a protocol like this compared to empagliflozin, uh, because that modulates the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system favorably, allowing you to run growth hormone pretty high and your sodium pretty high with minimal water retention. So even though you're adding in one more compound to the total stack of compounds, um, if you run through several brands of growth hormone and the edema is still there, maybe run some telmosartan, 20 milligrams, 40 milligrams, to get rid of the edema. Have you ever heard of injectable ubiquinol? I saw injectable coenzyme Q10, thought of using it as a pre-workout, but I could also homebrew injectable ubiquinol. Any thoughts? Um, I think the oral bioavailability is actually quite good, so why would you? Ubiquinol oral bioavailability. Let's see. Highly variable among individuals. Uh, oh, consume Q10 has low oral bioavailability due to its lipophilic nature. Large molecule weights. Okay. Well, if it's lipophilic, then of course you take it with fat. That's why most of the ubiquinol and um, consume Q10 formulas are in uh, gel caps. <laughs> so, um, I've never heard of about of injectable coenzyme Q10 or ubiquinol, but feel free to run the experiment and document the results through an Instagram direct message. And then uh, if it's very, very promising, I'll look into it. But I think the oral version is just fine. I notice a noticeable effect if I take 400 milligrams oral ubiquinol pre-workout, especially towards the tail end of my workout. I feel that my stamina and overall energy levels are far better than without it. Yeah. John Prather, when you do fasted card. <laughs> Look at that thumbnail. Jeez. Where is that from? I don't recognize this one. Hmm. Interesting thumbnail. All right. Where, when you do fasted cardio, is there a particular heart rate that you prefer? Zone two. Uh, let's say anywhere between 125 to 135 beats per minute. That seems to be. Uh, quote-unquote zone two for me of course everybody's different due to their age and their uh, you know hematocrit count because for zone two you also want to be almost out of breath but you still can hold a conversation right so um and and some exercises uh, are more strenuous on your quads and knees and calves and the overall lower body uh, for a particular amount of heart rate and other exercises so elliptical i can do quite intense but my heart rate is quite low but as soon as you do the stairmaster my heart rate is quite high and my knees are on fire so 
It really depends on which exercise you prefer and, and how high, how high your heart rate is, uh, for the amount of strain that you put on your lower body. So personally, I like, uh, the elliptical or, uh, you know, just a treadmill, but some people prefer the Stairmaster because their heart rate goes quite high and, uh, you know, they have low impact on their knees because biomechanically they're just built better for stairs. So give it a try. But it, it's good to do it every single day. I do it every single day, uh, or most days at least. When I was in the United States, I barely did fasted cardio, but I get like 15,000 to 25,000 steps in every single day. Yeah, so excuse me if I didn't do cardio when I was in the US. One of two. Oh, man. A lot of questions. One of two. Growth hormone is causing a reduction in my N3 deep sleep and REM sleep measured by professional grade home sleep study device. I'm guessing due to an increased T4 to T3 conversion, I'm on T3 only uh, for Hashimoto's because T4 made me feel like hell. Given my sleep issues with growth hormone and T4 issues, do you agree I should not add T4 while using growth hormone or cut my T3 dose and add some T4? Well, we're not, I mean, you're speculating here, right? Why don't you take the growth hormone out and uh or or take the growth hormone at a different time of day so it doesn't interfere with your sleep if you're taking growth hormone before bed then maybe it interferes with your sleep with your sleep maybe you should take some melatonin before bed and growth hormone upon waking what is your t4 intake like maybe your t4 levels are kind of low because the t or the growth hormone is still promoting the conversion of t4 into t3 but if you're not supplementing with t4 and due to Hashimoto's, maybe you're not producing enough T4 by yourself. So your T4 levels are low and your T3 levels are super high because the little, bit of, little amount of T4 that you have is being converted into T3. And then you're supplementing with T3. Maybe your supplemental dose of T3 is too high or maybe you're taking that too late in the evening. Maybe you should take your T4 and T3 50% in the morning, 50% in the afternoon, your growth hormone in the morning. So by the time the growth hormone is uh, metabolized, there's no additional T4 to T3 conversion later in the day, and then you should sleep accordingly. So you're going to have to experiment a little bit with dosing protocols and overall dosages of the compounds that you're taking until your growth hormone is good, right? But without blood work, we're just speculating here. And uh, yeah, without blood work, we don't really know. So maybe, maybe do your blood work um, and a sleep study around the same time. And then, uh, you know, depending on how your sleep was, you might want to make some adjustments to your uh, performance-enhancing drug protocol to uh, to see if that improves your sleep uh, the next time you do a sleep study or with a sleep study uh, comparable device, right? And I don't think that an Aura ring or an Apple Watch is comparable to a sleep study. Yeah. John Prather, it's you laying on the beach. Ah, right. That was in Bali. Yeah, that was super chill. It's you laying on the beach. I put it on here to, for meme week and I've never changed it. Yeah, I saw some people still just my face as their uh, avatar and then they post on uh, uh, people's <laughs> YouTube channels that I don't really like. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Steve's there in spirit. I guess we went through all the questions. Let's see if anybody posted something on uh, Patreon in the meantime. I guess not. Uh, how's the audio quality so far, guys? I spent uh, 
yeah too much money on this setup so i really hope it sounds good and then this crisper or crisp um artificial intelligence is making me sound good i do feel that the breathing and stuff there's a little bit of clipping still but maybe the longer i use this artificial intelligence the more it gets used to my voice and the better it sounds but i don't think that you can pick up on the fan and the um the air conditioning and my my laptop buzzing so at least i think the audio is good it took me like five to six hours to set everything up today and then i did two consultations and then i took a nap yeah so hopefully everything is good so and otherwise uh let's see what is uh paul burnett doing because of the time zone difference maybe there's not so many people this time oh there's 106 people watching into paul burnett's live stream damn 106 what is paul up to oh paul is looking lean Bolton is the only one with hair <laughs> All right. Now let's let that run. John, how about weighing in on the age-old debate whether a higher dose are more useful on a bulk versus a cut? I mean, if you want to make gains, a higher dose is more beneficial. I think it's weird that that you know John Jewett was saying that you need to, or or some of the other people saying that you need to reduce the dose on a cut because you only need to maintain. Um, you know, size, which of course, if you're trying to make weight for a weight class like 212, that makes sense. I mean, I've put some of my previous athletes on low dose cycles when they were making weight, because you know already that if you put them on high dose cycles, they're going to make too much gains and then they jump a weight class or two. So you put them on a maintenance dose. And then towards the end, you know, when you're, when you're confident in that they're going to make weight with practices, right? Uh, weight loss practices, like getting leaner and then water manipulation and removing the food for a day or two, if needed, then you can maybe throw in a couple of orals, um, you know, to add in the hardness. But I think it's just very simple. If you want to make progress, uh, food intake is high and drug intake, um, you know, slowly goes up, but on a cut, um, generally speaking, I would say because the food intake is low, the drug intake is going to be higher compared to a bulk because you're removing the anabolism of food, right? Food is highly anabolic due to the nutrient partitioning and the insulin and the overall hormonal response that foods obviously causes. So when you take the food away or you reduce that, uh, fullness goes away and you can artificially improve fullness with steroids and other performance enhancing drugs and artificially improve the protein, um, you know, protein expression and overall, uh, you know, protein synthesis with drugs when even though protein intake is elevated during a cut to compensate for a reduction in calories coming from carbs and fats, um, you're still going to get a good amount of gluconeogenesis from the protein that you're eating, which is also insulinotropic. So you might still elicit a hormonal response from the food that you're eating. So um, I've always done it like this. During a bulk in the off season, food goes up incrementally, training volume goes up incrementally, and the drug intake goes up incrementally. And on a cut, uh, food intake, it goes down incrementally. Uh, training volume goes down, but intensity goes up incrementally. And uh, drug intake also goes up incrementally, assuming you don't have to make weight for a particular weight class. Um, this way, you always make gains, right? Muscularity and strength-wise. But during a bulk, obviously, your body fat levels are going up. And during a cut, obviously, the body fat levels are going down. 
but there's different ways to skin the cat, man. And, and of course, if you're happy with your muscularity and strength, you don't need to use as much drugs during a cut. That's why I usually uh, recommend people also during a cut or to cut during a cruise when the overall intent is to make phenomenal gains during a bulk. Because this way you clean out, um, reduce the stress in your body from a training perspective, a drug perspective, and a food perspective, and then you start your next bulk fresh. But if you're cutting into a contest where everything goes and you need to fucking win, then anything goes regarding the performance enhancing drugs also, um, with the rate limiting factor being your health, right? Obviously. All right, Thomas. Your growth hormone dosing recommendations is one IU per 250, yeah, one IU growth hormone per day for 250 milligram steroids per week. Right. But why is that? Um, in my 10, 12 years of bodybuilding uh, coaching and uh, 15 years of enhanced bodybuilding and uh, doing research for 25 years in bodybuilding, uh, you know, I, I feel that that ratio is the most productive. Same as the ratio of 250 milligrams testosterone to 25 milligrams aromacin or uh, testosterone in a one-to-one -one ratio with a DHT derivative like uh, proviron or mastrone or testosterone derivative being boldenone, right? It seems to control the conversion of testosterone into estradiol favorably uh, for most people. And again, you know, body fat levels aside and individual aromatized enzyme expression aside and overall aromatized inhibiting uh, micronutrient intake like zinc, for example, right? Or nicotine, <laughs> anabasine, acotinine, right? All that aside, a one-to-one -one ratio of tests and uh, test primo, no, test versus uh, mastrone primo or boldenone seems to work well for most people. And this ratio of one IU of growth hormone per 250 IU, one IU growth hormone per day for every 250 milligrams of steroids per week works quite well for most people. There's absolutely no scientific literature to back this up. This is all rooted in experience. And out of all the guys that are out there, all the drug educators that are out there, um, I'm one of the few that has coached the longest besides the guys over at the Think Big Bodybuilding Media channel. I mean, they're also great educators, but if you put, uh, if you watch Blood, Sweat and Gear, you have Scott McNally, who's been coaching longer than I have. Uh, Ken Skip Hill is the OG online coach. He's been coaching the longest out of anybody besides Chris Aceto. And then Andrew Barry, who's also been coaching longer than I have. So those three aside, um, I think... I'm one of the longest coaching steroid educators out there, or one of the few uh, that has a YouTube channel. And based on my personal um, experience coaching <laughs> a good amount of athletes, I would say that one IU growth hormone per day for every 250 milligrams of steroids that you take per week is a, a very good ratio to get started. So 500 milligrams of steroids could be any or or two IUs, three IUs of growth hormone. And anything over that I feel is wasted when it comes to um, overall accrual of new muscle tissue. Will you get more fat loss, more fullness out of increasing the dose to say eight IUs of growth hormone? I'm sure of it. But will you put on more muscle tissue compared to three IUs of growth hormone? I highly doubt it. And again, this sets some guidelines to, um, you know, to get people to uh, make the most amount of gains for the least amount of money spent. And here we go, about eight patients using 18 years of growth hormone per day without any steroids, and that seems to be beneficial for muscle growth. So eight patients don't grow any muscle tissue. The 18 IUs of growth hormone that they take per day is to prevent muscle wasting. Muscle wasting through the anti-catabolic effects that such a high dose of growth hormone has. Um, so the same can be said for anivore, 
is an anti-muscle wasting medication, right? That's why it's prescribed in certain cases of sarcopenia, for example, burn victims. So if an age patient is wasting their muscle away and growth hormone is able to mitigate that, then that is the dose that they take. If an age patient goes on steroids on top of this growth hormone dose, they will get, of course, more muscle growth than the growth hormone is going to potentiate through the synergy, but they would still need to run their growth or their testosterone dose quite high or anabolic energetic steroid intake dose quite high to elicit more of an anabolic response and feel free to go up to 18 IUs of growth hormone per day and do that for six months without steroids, see how much muscle you gain. It's not going to be as much as growth hormone plus steroids. And the, grow, the muscle that you grow from steroids alone is not going to be as much as the combination of steroids plus growth hormone. And I would say with this one-to-one -one ratio or this one IU growth hormone per day ratio to 250 milligrams steroids per week, you can probably half the dose of steroids um, so instead of a gram of steroids, you run 500 milligrams of steroids with two or three IUs of growth hormone, and you should get similar results. Again, that's based on experience, no scientific evidence to back that up. Um, but I feel confident in my abilities, having coached so many people over the years, that that is going to be uh, correct for the large majority of people that are out there. So uh, again, feel free to give it a try. 18 IUs of growth hormone per day, if you can afford it. Run out for six months, see how much muscle you gain. Then add in 250 milligrams of uh, testosterone with an aromatized inhibitor if needed. See how much more you gain over the first six months. Uh, it will be substantial. And then reduce your growth hormone dose to one or two IUs. You will continue to make gains. Yeah, you will continue to make gains because now you have synergy between the testosterone and the growth hormone and you didn't need that much growth hormone to elicit an anabolic response on top of the testosterone or anabolic steroids that you were taking. All right. So why would we limit it to one IU per? Yeah, so I just explained it and you said thank you. Okay. <laughs> Long-winded answer. And again, I, I, guys, I don't want you to spend money unnecessarily. So, right, so this is why I like a multitude of different compounds because one plus one is three. And if you do one plus one plus one is seven, right? And imagine if you have seven different compounds, all at low and effective dosages. I mean, I've been doing this for decades now. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why most of my guys are healthy, but it also means that the barrier of entry and the knowledge or requirement is so much higher because you don't go on test only in an aromatized inhibitor, cookie card, TRT, or cookie cutter, um, you know, steroid.com cycles, you go and test the growth hormone, insulin, and IGF-1, LR3, or, or you know, a DES or whatever uh, IGF-1 you can find, and perhaps a DHT derivative on top to control your estrogen and elicit more of a cosmetic response. Um, keep the water retention at bay, and then maybe tell Masartan to control your blood pressure or Nabivalol to preserve calories and control your blood pressure um, right? and, and prevent negative heart remodeling. So... It, it's never as simple as just running one compound at a high dose. It's better to, let's say 18 IUs of growth hormone. How much money can you, 18 IUs, right? Let's say the going rate is uh, $5 for that much. It's $90 a day yeah? times 30. That's $2,700 a month. Now, most people would not be able to spend that on a cycle. So let's do $500 per month, right? We have uh, an ampule of tests. Let's say $5, uh, high quality pharmaceutical test, $5. You need 
uh, on a four and a half week, four and a half, oh, 4.5 times five, that's $23 a month. Cheap AF. Now throw in an aromatized inhibitor, let's say 50 cents per tablet at uh, one aromat one tablet of aromacin per one ampule of testofiron. Right, so we have uh, four and a half. Oh no, that's not true because we're doing 500 milligrams per week. So that's double, right? Okay, so that's $45 for the cycle, 500 milligrams a test. And then we have 50 cents times 4.5 times two per week is, oh, is that correct? 4.5 times four, times two, $4.5. So that's $50 for the test in the aromacin. Then you put two IUs of growth hormone on top per day, also $5 or uh, so five times two times 30. $300, so now we're at $350. Let's say uh, 100 micrograms IGF-1. So that's $6 per day, give or take, IGF-1 LR3, because not everybody can get Incrolex, times uh, 21 days, because you should do 21 days on, 10 days off. $6, 126 plus 350 is 476 and then the insulin 25 dollars worth of insulin um let's say that's uh, 10 ius per day is that correct lens is a bit more expensive but let's let's say 10 ius of lentis per day so 500 tests two ius of growth hormone 10 ius of uh 10 ius of long acting insulin lentis an aromatized inhibitor and 100 micrograms igf1 500 dollars per month you think you're going to get more of a response on 18 IUs of growth hormone per day, solo, <laughs> for $2,700 versus this $500 cycle? I think not. I think not. And for that $2,200, you can do a consultation and buy the eBooks every single month. You're welcome. <laughs> No, but actually you should spend that on high quality food, high quality gym membership, taking your girlfriend out to dinner. Um, because 18 IUs of growth hormone is only for the most elite guys out there. And guess what? They're getting sponsored left and right. They're making $25,000 a month. And that $2,700 that they're spending on Serostim, um, that they're probably not spending $2,700 on, but pr probably $2,000 on, right? Because favors and et cetera, um, right? That's a good return of investment. But if you if you make $5,000 a month or $3,000 a month, then it's definitely not worth it. Maybe spend $500 on your cycle, leverage low dosages of the bioidentical compounds and, 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 you know, spend an equal amount of money on food, if not more, right? Spending $500 per month on food, ideally $700 per month on food, high quality food that is easy to digest. Let's do it. Well, I think you already answered my question. <laughs> this sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome, Thomas. You're welcome. All right. Uh, I think we've been going on for, oh, let's do one more question. Then we're going to go public. I believe you decided to run Incrolex post-workout to minimize systemic effects. Do you still think this idea uh, and would you do the same with LR3? So I did it uh, sub-Q for a while. I did it pre-bed for a while. I did it post-workout for a while. I did it pre-workout for a while. Uh, I mixed in some IGF-1 LR3 from Amino Asylum. And long story short, I think that pre-workout bilaterally is still the best because you get crazy pumps. 
uh, which you don't get if you do it post-workout. And it seems that the recovery is exactly the same. But since I haven't run it for a very long time and I'm not on steroids and I'm relying on muscle memory, I used to be much bigger than this, good times. Um, I can't say if the post-workout versus pre-workout administration protocol is going to elicit more of a, a new growth response, one versus the other. So unfortunately, we'll never get that experience uh, experiment because I'm not interested in getting back up to 118, 120 kilos. Um, so for uh, enjoyment in the gym purposes, I'm going to do the Incrolex pre-workout because who doesn't like a good pump, right? Good pump in gym, good pump in the bedroom, uh, good pump when you inflate the tires of your car, right? You get that, that nice feeling when you go over the road, right? where the, the tires are really gripping the road because it's so inflated, properly inflated. You have that unique sound. Um, so yeah, a good pump everywhere. Um, that is my favorite way to go. All right, guys, uh, I think it's bathroom time and it's been one hour already. Uh, so let's go public and then fingers crossed uh, that not everybody's still watching uh, Paul Barnett's uh, live stream. But I'm sure people will start to trickle in as they come along. All right, bathroom break. Brep, <laughs> break. BRB. Right. I'm going to press this beautiful mute button on the Wave XLR, and then fingers crossed you can't hear me urinate. Let's go. What's up, guys? Let me sit properly. Man, it's getting cold. It's getting cold in Thailand. I just came back from the United States, and it was cold there. We had like one one nice day in LA, and now it's cold here. What's up, bro? What's good? 
All right, guys, how does the audio sound? I uh, I finally got my uh, Shure mic. Let me show it on camera real quick. There you go. Oh, it's too heavy. Look at that. All right, so I'm going to put this off camera and then put this properly. A little bit lower, please. Oh, just had it set up properly. All right, how's this? All right. With the family, but audio is good. Okay, good. So I got a Wave XLR right off camera. I still have to put this cloud lifter in between, but I only have one XLR cable. And then hopefully the audio quality is a little bit better because this, I feel that this XLR cable is picking up a little bit of background noise. Um, so we're going to put this cloud lifter in there. And well, I bought it and unboxed it. So now I might as well use it, right? And then uh, hopefully everything sounds nice and dandy. I might still have a little bit of clipping here and there because um, I'm using Crisp, some sort of application to um, remove all the background noise. So that's the, the clicking of the mouse, the laptop, the... Uh, man, I always forget the name, the air conditioning and the fan that's sitting here because I'm trying to keep this room uh, cool, obviously. So there might still be a little bit of audio clipping when I'm breathing, but I think this is the best audio quality I've had uh, so far. Certainly a lot better than uh, that fucking Blue Yeti mic. <laughs> Terrible. All right. Uh, let's see. Well, start posting your questions, guys. I guess the anabolic uh, bodybuilding podcast is still uh, going on. So we'll have to wait for Paul Burnett to finish, which, uh, oh, just, just finished. Did he, did he finish because I'm starting? <laughs> Shit, I hope not. Oh, no, Paul, what are you doing? All right, let's uh, get started with the questions. Kemi. Hey, Steve, started nandrolone phenylpropionate 300 milligrams per week with 400 milligrams. Test started having back pumps and like muscle cramp pains. Do you think it's a gear issue, the quality of the MPP being on test? No problem. Well, you just increased your anabolic load with 300 milligrams. So, um, you know, might, maybe the increment is too high. Maybe your estrogen levels are too high because you're not mentioning anything about an aromatized inhibitor. And nandrolone plus testosterone without an aromatized inhibitor is estrogen galore, estrogen heaven. That is going to make you retain water. And uh, those back pumps are uh, one of the reasons is uh, excessive water retention. So if you look in the mirror and you look like the Michelin man, um, estrogen might be high. Now, don't haphazardly start to take, um, you know, an aromatized inhibitor. But let's see. Uh, but... Uh, you know, you need to do your blood work first. And I see you're already taking taurine. So that was my second recommendation. So stay on top of the taurine, stay on 10,000 milligrams until you do your blood work and then make further adjustments to make sure that, uh, you know, your estrogen levels and your water retention are, um, you know, under control. And in the meantime, also look into telmosartan to mitigate some of the water retention, which can exacerbate the lower back pumps that you're currently experiencing to at least get some immediate relief. Do you need to telmosartan continuously? Uh, probably not, unless you like uh, the blood pressure reduction and the potential mitigation of left ventricular hypertrophy that a nandrolone seems to potentiate uh, with continuous use. So... So no water bloating. I'm on an AI. All right. Well, in that case, um, 
maybe take the nandrolone out. See what happens. Maybe nandrolone is just causing too much anabolism in lower back pumps. And otherwise, uh, well, this kind of sucks, but what I did to mitigate the lower back pumps you know, indefinitely, besides the taurine supplementation that I'm on indefinitely, um, is just uh, telling your lower back to go fuck itself and do, uh, what is it called? Um, you know, not the reverse hyper, or regular hyperextensions. <laughs> regular hyperextensions every single day at the end of your workout. That's what I did for a while. And then the lower back pumps get really, really bad for a while, and they slowly go away because you kind of stretch the muscle from the inside, and then the fascia is stretched, and then it doesn't really happen anymore. So that would be my last recommendation. All right, Zane, what's your recommended acne prevention protocol? I mean, dude, I have so many videos about this, and it's like everybody asks this every single week. So I'm, I'm going to mention it briefly. Right, follow an elimination diet so you don't eat inflammatory foods, remove all the processed foods, remove all the dairy products. That includes whey protein. Um, the only dairy product that is still approved is yogurts with probiotic life cultures. So that could be Greek yogurt, something like that. All right, that's the only uh, yogurt that's approved because it, uh, you know, the life cultures kind of pre-digest the um, lactose that's in there. All the other dairy products, remove it, check the ingredient list if it has lactose or you know sources of dairy remove all of that remove anything that's inflammatory that's probably the processed foods that you're eating um then shower regularly kill all the bacteria on your skin with doxycycline um then repopulate your gut microbiome with raw foods and um if you're on steroids make sure you do daily subcutaneous microadministrations to prevent hormonal fluctuations and then last but not least, watch all those acne videos that I have on my YouTube channel. And then the last resort would be Accutane, whether that's uh, topical uh, tretinoin cream or oral isotretinoin, um, low dose to start, and then building your way up if needed, if desired, to remove the acne permanently. But you will still get acne even if you do a high dose Accutane for a longer period of time, which is what I did um, a couple of years ago. So, yeah. Oh, shit. I didn't get, I didn't have time to research this. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I totally forgot. Let me make a note. It's been a crazy week, guys. Let me make a note. One second. Ask me next weekend. Then again, you know, whatever I research, you can probably find on Google as well. I never recommend the stack anymore, dude. So I uh, can't really remember. So ask me next week. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, dude. It's just it's been a crazy week. I'm trying to catch up back uh, with consultations and all the work that I neglected when I was in uh, in the United States, and I've been uh, horribly sick since I came back. Actually, since the Olympia, but it just got worse and worse and worse. And then I lost my voice and the time zone difference. I mean, you don't want to know. What are your thoughts on people hating on collagen protein, calling it an incomplete amino acid profile and that it's inferior to normal protein sources like whey? Uh, probably the guys that are being sponsored by whey companies and that can't interpret scientific evidence correctly. I, I see once in a while there's another uh, short out there saying that uh, this is a study showed that the collagen protein didn't do anything for collagen synthesis um you know with the literature xyz 
and then it's always one study and it's never in the context of athletes. So I've been taking collagen since fuck a decade because I didn't want to get the, the pimples from whey protein. And, you know, since connective tissue and skin and muscle is predominantly made out of collagen, for me, it made logical sense to start supplementing with collagen to have all the building blocks available at the right time. Doesn't mean you go on a collagen only diet. Duh. You supplement collagen around the workout when it's probably the best beneficial. And then feel free to combine that with whey protein to kind of flavor the collagen shake because collagen kind of tastes like ass unless it's flavored. All right. So Gorilla Mind is a great collagen supplement with uh, several flavors available. They have collagen one, two, three, and hyaluronic acid and vitamin C. So it's a one-stop shop for a collagen supplement. It has everything in there for collagen uh, synthesis and deposition. So and, and flavor, right? So you don't have to mix it with whey protein and uh, potentially, um, you know, risk getting horrible, horrible acne. So, you know, just just keep taking your collagen and over time you will see that your skin is better, your hair quality is better, the um, formation of uh, stretch marks is gone um, and whatever the scientific literature says is uh, only one part of the story. And until I see somebody make a video with the complete breakdown, and I don't think, even think that Physionic has made a breakdown on collagen protein, but I could be mistaken. He's been MIA for the last couple of weeks, probably got enough subscribers now. <laughs> um, you know, even if the scientific literature is thin, uh, thin, my personal experience working with a lot of bodybuilders over the years tells me that through collagen supplement uh, supplementation, that health is better, connective tissue is stronger, skin texture is better, and recovery is better. So, and that's on top of the complete bro uh, proteins that you have in the form of eggs and steak and chicken and salmon and any other animal meat-based uh, protein source. Like collagen is just a supplement that nutrition still needs to be in place. So, yeah. All those guys that just review one uh, one. Uh, one scientific uh, literature. I mean, that's not what I do. When we reviewed the Baldron regarding kidneys, we looked at all of it, all of the fucking scientific literature. That's what a researcher does. Not one study, not one study, all of it. So if you see somebody quoting one study and they barely read the abstract and then made a, um, an Instagram short about it, unfollow fuck these people they're retards they don't know what they're talking about and most of these guys are just hiding behind scientific evidence that's paper thin anyway because they lack the experience right a lot of the people are guilty of this they lack the experience they didn't coach as many people or they didn't coach as all they were shit bodybuilders or never bodybuilders in general or were never even an athlete and they just extrapolate from scientific evidence wrongly because they can't filter it through their experience because they don't have any knowledge so again, do your own research. And even if you see something on this YouTube channel that doesn't sound, um, you know, true or too good to be true or doesn't sound correct, again, do further research. And if the research is thin and it still sparks your interest, okay, the barrier of entry is usually the purchase of one uh, collagen supplement or one over-the-counter supplement or one performance enhancing drug that I talk about. Give it a try for yourself. You turn that information that you found online into knowledge through experience, right? Information plus experience is knowledge.
And the difference between guys that have been doing this for decades and the guys that are uh, marketing the or milking the algorithm is knowledge. All right, Bill. Okay. Elite FTS podcast was killer. I think you're the most passionate guy when their discussion comes to the table. Mark Bell was awesome too. Keep him coming, brother. Yes, we'll have one more podcast with uh, Nail Naiga, and then we're going to do a, a boatload of podcasts on this YouTube channel. And the list of people that are going to come on over the next couple of months is very, very long. Yeah, I'm starting to schedule now. You guys will be surprised because it seems that everybody's watching the Vicar Steve YouTube channel now. So um, instead of me asking, uh, people are no, not begging, but are very, very willing to come on the podcast here. And having 100,000 subscribers uh, certainly helps also. Or close to it. All right, we're going to break that pretty soon. All right, here we go. Matteo Santaniello. What information is needed to determine the frequency of administration of any drug? Thank you, Big Steve. Well, the half-life and the metabolism, right? So, um, but ideally you just take it every day or twice per day. So let's say the half-life is 12 hours. You would take it at least twice per day, but ideally uh, three times per day. So with steroids, testosterone, propionate, anatate, cypionate, uh, or, or funky esters like acetate or undecan uh, or decanoate, Andrelon, undecanoate, yeah, testosterone, undecanoate. Um, you, you know, I would still do a daily, daily administrations just for the sake of having these drugs in your system at a, you know, normal concentration throughout the day. And with growth hormone, there's something to say for that. And even for long-acting insulin, there's something to say for that. I mentioned that in the insulin ebook. You know, maybe you don't do more than 25 or 30 IUs of Lantus per injection, but maybe you do like 30 IUs in the morning and then 10 IUs. 10 IUs of Lantus before bed. If you're very, very, very experienced and you understand the effects on your blood glucose levels, right? So um, the half-life is needed and the, the metabolism is needed, right? And the onset maybe, but you know, the road, road, route of administration. So do some research and then determine how you want to proceed. But most people go off with daily administrations every single day um for most drugs unless it's recreational drugs message all right iron grids on the topic of a pre-workout carbs what are some of the better simpler carbs that don't make you eat get a sugar crash later in the day try two medium bananas felt a bit nauseated later in the day really from bananas maybe those were not ripe you you live in uh yeah, you live in a country where bananas are not um, grown. So maybe eat an apple or um, something along those lines that is grown there. So it doesn't get, you know, plucked or taken from the tree when it's not ripe. And then they artificially ripen that on transit. And that's the problem with bananas. Like here in Thailand, the best bananas, best pineapples, best mangoes, best watermelons because of this climate, right? Apples, strawberries raspberries, any kind of berry, they kind of shit because tile climate or Southeast Asia climate is not made for those kinds of fruits. So um, stick with a fruit that is natively grown in the country that you live in. And then um, and otherwise a high brain cyclic dextrins inter-workout seems to work quite well. 100K on the way, Dr. Dean St. Mart, one of the smartest guys in our fitness industry who is still not on YouTube regularly. Dean, hurry the fuck up. Hurry the fuck up, stop writing articles and get on YouTube. 
Iron Grit, almost at 100K. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, my medicine, I, I uh, will still get on the podcast soon. Yeah. Well, I still need to reach out, but I am reaching out to other people, so I got to schedule accordingly. I, I hate reaching out and then say, yeah, I have a time in two months' time. Right? So uh, what are your thoughts on Braddock Chavish's approach uh, where your testosterone dose stops at being a sports TRT at three milligrams per kilogram of body weight, then the rest is anabolics to meet specific needs? Um, I'm not really familiar with Braddock's approach. I never really followed what he was doing because uh, I never really followed anybody's steroid advice, honestly. <laughs> Just figured out my own. Uh, I saw Broderick at uh, Mr. Olympia. Um, I wanted to say hi, but he was frowning a lot and he was way shorter than I anticipated. So I wasn't really sure if it was Broderick, but later, later I realized it was Broderick, but he seemed to be in a bad mood. So I didn't want to break his bad mood by saying, hey, what's up? I'm Steve. We both hate Victor Black. And then, you know, do the maximum bro fist and to have uh, you know shared common interest and then discuss steroids. So maybe next year. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, there's many different ways to skin the cat. So if Broderick says uh, three milligrams per kilogram of body weight, uh, so let's say that would be uh, 300 milligrams of test for me and then the rest is anabolics. Um, that's fine. If it works, it works. Uh, I prefer high test, you know, with an equal amount of uh, Prima Ballon or Mastron to keep estrogen at bay. But I don't mind running high test with an aromatized inhibitor either. I mean, I got the best results out of high test and high GH and high insulin and high IGF-1. So, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, follow who you like. Follow who you think is the most uh, knowledgeable and, and looks the most healthy and, you know, is the most liked. I guess, not saying that I am, but. Roderick um, seems to uh, piss off people quite a bit, but maybe it's just too straightforward and honest. I don't know. Dean, get busy, dude. Vicarian. Uh, any downsides to using diuretics like diazide in the off-season once or twice a week for purely cosmetic reasons to reduce excess water? Uh, well, if it's prescribed, I mean, Chase Irons was using a low-dose diazide or hydrochlorothiazide without the 3 m terrine um to keep the water retention off and the blood pressure at bay so I, i'm not against it but I, I would feel that you know frequent use of diuretics is a last resort if you can't manage it with electrolyte intake water intake cardio you know telmasartan and 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 maybe uh what is it called uh that over-the-counter supplements uh carditone well, if you can't manage it with that okay maybe do a diazide course if you're on a boatload of gh and tests and the food then you know maybe those methods don't really work anymore you need a little bit of diazide to keep the water off dean writing here while listening i mean you're taking all my advice <laughs> all right nice work nice work no man keep working on those books dean we need we need print for some knowledge because it's sometimes very difficult to articulate particular ideas in uh, video format. Could you please drop a video on your wife's fertility stack, vitamin stack when she's pregnant, when post-pregnancy for breastfeeding, how to avoid? No, I'm not going to do that. 
No, because my wife is a normal, healthy woman. And um, the way that uh, the world works is um, that sometimes you put out content that is just going to create a stir. So whatever we do for fertility purposes and for our baby, um, that's what we're going to do for ourselves. Because the last thing I need is a, a boatload of meddling people um, or people meddling into our practices, which we feel through research is the best practices for us. And since I'm not a fertility expert, I don't feel that it's uh, a good video topic um, for this YouTube channel. There are much better YouTube channel when it comes to fertility, but I will make a video about how to restore fertility in the context of taking steroids in the past for men. Right? I know a lot, but I don't know everything. And uh, just because I know enough for me and my wife doesn't mean I need to make videos about it. So please do your own research. Um, this video is about steroids and not about fertility, right? Performance enhancing drugs. That's what it's about. And just look at the fertility videos that I make. They got fuck all views. So why bother? <laughs> Are we still alive? Holy fuck. I pressed the button on this. <laughs> pressed the button on this new microphone, on this new mouse, and it went back. I got to disable those buttons. All right. My bad. Am I back? What the hell, dude? What the hell? All right, is everything working? My God, man. Is everything working? All right. Well, definitely don't press that back button. <laughs> man, all right, where were we? Yeah, so no fertility videos coming when it comes to this. Hey, Steve, if somebody is experiencing gyno issues due to progesterone, even with 2AU's growth hormone, 150 milligrams, decadurabolin, one gram testosterone anethate is already taking vitamin B6, uh, P5P, and L-tyrosine along with Arimidex. What else can be done? Um, well, so if the progesterone is high, that's probably uh, the nandrolone detecting as progesterone. And it means uh, prolactin might still be high or estrogen might still be high. Uh, again, did you check those levels? Right? That is the most uh, important thing in this context. Um, because I don't want you to haphazardly make changes without doing your blood work. Because maybe the gyno is just water retention or, or just inflammation that isn't, you know, progressing into gyno yet. So please check your progesterone, prolactin, and uh, estrogen levels. If one of those are off, make sure that you make the appropriate adjustments. And if none of those are off, uh, take the nandrolone out. Maybe it's just making your nipples puffy. And that means that, uh, yeah, that uh, nandrolone is not for you. And maybe you should take a little bit of uh, primabolin or mastrone instead to have an opposing effect on the gyno tissue. Because, um, you know, at least Mastron was medically used uh, to reduce symptoms of breast cancer, uh, which might overlap into uh, similar effects when it comes to reduction or mitigation of gynecomastia tissue. All right. Now, here, don't forget the super chat. Andrew Garcia, on your push-pull leg a split three days a week, Tuesday, Friday, Sunday, uh, so that's from the free article that you can find on my website. Let me link it down below. And my website is super slow lately due to the latest update of um, WordPress. 
Oh, not not lost pretty quickly. All right. Well, let's see. Articles. Training. Now let's lo let that load in the meantime. Um, so he's doing two hour long workouts. Do I keep uh, doing this or stick with your original one working set for exercise? So if you're doing three working sets, that's a bit much. I would reduce it to one working set and then a back off set. And, and maybe you're just doing too many exercises. So a two hour workout is a bit long, but it's not unheard of. I mean, I've done that for my push pull legs uh, splits uh, quite a bit. But then again, that was in the off season uh, with a boatload of food and a boatload of uh, testosterone, growth hormone and insulin. So again, if your recovery is in place, then you might be able to get away with it. But most people do better with one and a half hours worth of uh, training. Let's see how to design your own push-pull leg split with examples. There you go. Link is down below. Save. Because I usually keep forgetting to do that. So I would uh, reduce the working sets. Uh, do one working set with a back offset afterwards. So you maybe do six to eight to 10 reps in your working set. And then you back it down to 75 to 60% of your working weight to get, let's say, eight, 12, 15 reps in. Again, depending on the rep range. And then um, you do one field set for the next uh, exercise, then one working set, and then one backup set. So you get three total sets. One is a field set to kind of acclimatize to the new uh, movement pattern, and then one working set. And then one back offset. And sometimes you don't even need the the fuel set. Maybe you can go straight into the working set. Right? Or maybe your rest time is just too long and you need to look into Muldronate and Amoxapine and Hypoxin, right? Which I all have videos about in the endurance deep dive video series. So yeah, look there. What are your thoughts on low dose testosterone just enough for adequate estrogen levels and high dose and androlone? Uh, again, if it works, it works. I wouldn't recommend it. I would rather do the opposite, but some people prefer that, right? That's why we have guys like Ty and Clark advocating high nandrolone and, uh, HCG or high nandrolone and low dose test, or maybe a balance between both, right? So, um, give it a try. It's not the end of the world. If the, if you get a good response out of that experiment, and if the experiment fails, then at least you tried, you got your hands dirty and you know, for future reference that it's not going to work for you instead of just wondering and asking me about it. What do you think about, you know, I think you can get away with hundred milligrams of test and a gram of nandrolone and get adequate estrogen levels. Yeah. Click that like button. Yes, please. Bashkar, if DHA and pregnenolone supplements have higher dosing per serving, can you do their dosing protocol every other day? Progesterone versus 17 uh, oxyhydroxyprogesterone for pregnenolone levels. Um, so pregnenolone doesn't get converted from those two. It only goes one way. So if you want to raise your pregnenolone levels, you get a pregnenolone supplement that has a higher dose serving. You only get those 100 milligram tablets which is uh, developed for the elderly. Um, what you can do is uh, a backfill, a three milliliter syringe with a powdered pregnenolone from a capsule or tablet. And then you draw in, uh, you know, back to a static order or Everclear or anything that keeps it sterile. You shake that up, let everything dissolve. So you draw in one milliliter and then you have 100 milligrams pregnenolone in there. And then you dump 0.1 milliliter or 10 IUs, well, it's not an insulin syringe, it's a three milliliter syringe. You dump a 0.1 milliliter into um, your morning coffee, 
<laughs> it will taste pretty bad, right? If you put bacteriostatic water or Everclear in there. Okay, so you just dump 0.1 milliliter um, in a glass of water and then drink that. And then you dose that that way, right? So you get 10 milligrams of the pregnenolone that you want to take or 12.5 or 25 milligrams, whatever you want to do. So dissolve it and then dose it with a syringe. I would not do it every day. I prefer every day because if you do it every other day, of course, the intake is going to be double that high. And then more of this pregnenolone is going to convert into progesterone. You don't give it adequate time to be metabolizing through the steroids. Uh, or it's sulfatase, steroid, the, the fuck. Uh, SDS, steroid, sulfatase. Is it steroid, sulfatase? STS? Oh, yes. Steroid sulfatase. Let's see, I'm down the other direction. That's steroid sulfatase. I need the other direction. Steroid sulfatase catalyzes the conversion of sulfated steroid precursors into the free steroids. So we need. Pregnenolone sulfate metabolized or into, what's the other one? Sometimes Wikipedia really fails you. I'm sure Dr. Dean St. Martin is laughing his ass off and screening at the screen. Now this is the right one. Sulfotransferase. Okay, sulfo, steroid sulfotransferase. Okay, here we go. So, steroid sulfotransferase 2B1A uh, converts pregnenolone into pregnenolone sulfate, sulfate, and then pregnenolone sulfate is converted into steroid, uh, is converted into pregnenolone through steroid sulfatase. Man, it sucks that you have to consult Google sometimes. I should know this shit, but there's so much to know and so little time to retain it. Okay, so um, if you take a high-dose pregnenolone supplement, a good amount of that is going to convert into progesterone instead of it converting into pregnenolone sulfate through steroid sulfotransferase activity. Ah, yeah. And that way you have a buffer of pregnenolone for later use when you're not supplementing with pregnenolone through exogenous routes. So the steroid... Uh, sulfatase metabolizes the sulfate from the pregnenolone and makes pregnenolone bioavailable again but it's better to do that every single day for stable pregnenolone and stable pregnenolone sulfate levels uh, instead of converting into progesterone and then your progesterone is too high and then you get you know maybe some Sorry, guys. Um, this my this. I don't know. Every time I grab it, I just keep touching that little thing. I didn't do it in the beginning. My bad. All right, where are we? MK. I used testosterone over ten years now. Never recovered. <laughs> he never recovered. Uh, I'm taking Clomid. It's not a joke on you. It's like a quote from Get Big, uh, back in the days. <laughs> So what happened to so and so? He, he had a you know he got outed and he never recovered, right? It's a meme. It's not a, not against you, MK. 
So he never recovered from his testosterone use uh, regarding his HPTA. I'm taking Clomid now and LH and total T increase, but not FSH. How can I increase FSH for fertility? So my LH and FSH never really came up uh, over two and a half million IUs per milliliter. That's why I decided not to come off this time. Um, I want my FSH and LH or ATG at middle top of the reference range for good fertility, which my, uh, you know, semen parameters are quite good. But the age of 40, uh, it's only 5% chance to get your wife pregnant every round of, um, you know, trying around ovulation. So it's good. It, it takes a while. Um, so in my case, I'm supplementing with ATG to uh, fulfill the LH pathway and exogenous FSH uh, to fulfill the FSH pathway because my pituitary simply is non-cooperative, even on clomid. So how can you increase FSH for fertility? Uh, by administering it from exogenous sources in the form of Merck gonal F recombinant follicle stimulating hormone. Why subject yourself to clomid any longer than is needed? Um, and even though, you know, recombinant ATG and recombinant FSH is more expensive, I would still say that it's better for your health than long-term clomid therapy because clomid um, has all kinds of side effects through estrogen blockade, um, you know, by, uh, what is it, uh, inhibiting the, the metabolism of domosterol into cholesterol. Uh, what is domosterol? Yeah, domosterol into cholesterol. So now your cholesterol levels go down, which might look good on paper, but long-term it might not be good for your overall cell membrane isolation, which is what is cholesterol. It's been a long day. What is uh, cholesterol made of? Right? The membranes of your cells partially containing triglycerides and cholesterol molecules. So you need a good amount of cholesterol through the normal conversion of domosterol into, or dermosterol. Domosterol. Is it domosterol? Dermosterol. Man, so many mistakes today. Jeez, what the fuck is it? Do I do? Clomid. Dermosterol. Desmosterol. Jesus fucking Christ. Desmosterol. Okay. My bad, guys. Drawing a blank. So, you mean take Clomid, the metabolism of desmosterol. Uh, is inhibited and thus cholesterol levels go down which might look good on your blood work but again you need a certain amount of cholesterol for your cells to function correctly and uh cholesterol by blocking the estrogen receptors obviously is going to lower igf1 which you might think is good for uh, anti-aging purposes but it's not good for recovery and uh, uh, clomid obviously is going to increase your liver enzymes and clotting risk and why would you want to have clotting risk in this uh, day and age? So uh, I would just go with exogenous HCG and FSH and throw the clomid in the towel because if you're not recovering after four to six weeks of clomid use, 
uh, and your LH and FSH levels are still low, and they might still stay low for six months. And even after six months, your LH and FSH levels might be two milliIUs per milliliter, three at most, which probably is not sufficient for adequate fertility. And in the meantime, you could have been pinning LH or ATG and FSH and recovered all of your fertility parameters. Rest in peace, yeah. <laughs> so many Google uh, searches today. Need a good night's sleep, that's what I need. Did I miss one? Where is this? Oh, here it is. All right, I'm 18. I took one andro topically at 200 milligrams for three weeks, as well as growth hormones 5AU. I got my blood work done and my testosterone is 180 nanograms per deciliter. Do I have hypogonadism or is this a result of these supplements? What should I do? Okay, so since you're 18, you're of adult age. Uh, you made a stupid mistake, but it's not the end of the world. Um, I would uh, wait maybe four weeks, let the one andro metabolize, see if your levels bounce back, because in many cases, 18-year-olds that do stupid experiments for three weeks like this, they don't need a post-cycle therapy. You just need the one andro to metabolize from your system. Um, and then once that's metabolized and negative effect on your HPTA is gone, then uh, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone will slowly come up and your testosterone levels will recover to normal levels. And if that's not the case, four weeks from now, which is then uh, at least uh, four weeks, but ideally six weeks after you stop the one andro, if testosterone levels, LH and FSH levels are not up by the time, then you might need a post-cycle therapy in the form of uh, Clomid and Novidex. And I have a video about that. It's called the post-cycle therapy video for dummies, I think. Give that one a watch or buy the... Um, you know, the the, uh, the post-cycle therapy ebook where I explain that. But long story short, you might need 50 milligrams clomid or enclomiphene before bed for two to four weeks to um, block the estrogen receptors. Again, we don't know your estrogen levels, but blocking the estrogen receptors is generally a good idea to recover luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone secretion from the pituitary gland. It might take two weeks, it might take four weeks, it might take six weeks. I don't think you need Nolvidex. I don't think you need a higher dose than Clomid because you're young. I don't think you need a higher dose because the suppression was only three weeks, maybe four weeks, maybe seven weeks at maximum. Um, and I think two weeks or four weeks on Clomid is going to be sufficient. Again, do your blood work frequently. Don't just take testosterone. Check your testosterone, sexual hormone binding globulin, estrogen, uh, luteinizing hormone, and follicle-stimulating hormone. And then, uh, fingers crossed, everything is going to play out. And uh, write it off as experience, right? We all make stupid mistakes, but that's, it's not the end of the world. Next time you can uh, take steroids again is when you're 25. All right, so see you in seven years. You know. Skipped your super chat. Oh, sorry. I, I was bamboozled by the $20. So, D3. Um, here we are. Did uh, HCH, HCG, I guess. The G is next to the H on the keyboard. So I did human chorionic gonadotropin monotherapy, 1,000 IOs five times a week. Holy shit. I <laughs> got my estradiol to 95 uh, picograms per milliliter because I screw up my AI management. I have aromacin and arimidex on hand. Which should I run? Um, 
well, the estrogen is already present. So all you can do is prevent further conversion of the uh, testosterone that you're secreting from the testicles with this high dose HTG monotherapy. And uh, I would shift more towards aromacin, 6.25 milligrams two times per week should be enough to bring your estrogen down to, let's say, 45 picograms per milliliter, assuming your uh, total testosterone is at the top of the reference range. All right, so what is your total testosterone levels? D3. Are you confirmed that it's HCG? Yeah, not HCH. Is that, is that human growth hormone or human chorionic gonadotropin? It's only one G apart from two different compounds. All right, was it dictionary? Uh, sounds like two vowels. People get it wrong and then you throw up the middle finger. It's not an instruction, just to flip them off. Um, what is your total testosterone levels like? All right, we'll answer that later. Thomas. Thomas still asking questions. <laughs> what do you think is a viable idea to get uh, to go to Turkey and buy genotropin pens for $85 a piece? Or could I go about taking these back to Belgium? Um, well, when did you have them shipped to Belgium, dude? I mean, what is a flight to Turkey? All right, here we're going to go to Google again. Skyscanners. From Belgium. Brussels International to Turkey. It's probably Istanbul, right? Istanbul. I like, I like uh, financial questions. So any dates all right we're gonna oh not in december that's expensive let's say we go mid-december 13 to 16. submit return flight one adult direct flights though because the more often you change flight the less uh, your growth hormone is going to lose potency all right oh lufthansa is only 200 dollars but it's probably 300 dollars by the time you uh pay for your luggage and you still need checked-in luggage. So let's say it's $300. All right, and online, how much does a pen of genotropin cost? Uh, let's go to the tried and proven anabolic pharmacist. All right, who sells genotropin pens from Turkey. All right, international prices. Genotropin. One genotropin pen without remail is $135. But maybe for uh, you know Belgium, you need a email option. It's one hundred seventy. So let's let's say you go for the cheapest option, one hundred thirty-five dollars for a twelve milligram slash thirty-six IU pin. Now you're paying eighty-five dollars, so you're saving fifty dollars, and the flight is three hundred dollars. So when you buy six pens, um, you break even. If you buy twelve pens you save $300. Now, is the risk of <laughs> bringing in 12 pence worth saving $300? I think not. I think not. At least if it gets stuck in the mail, you can always play the, play the fifth, you know, play dumb. So I didn't order that, right? But when you have it in your luggage, 12 pence of genotropin, and you need a lot of HIV to cover that, so just just buy it from anabolic pharmacists and if you want to go to turkey do it for a vacation 
And if you want to fly to Turkey, I would do. I would rather fly to Turkey to buy Prima Ballin because that's mad expensive online. But for Genotropin, I wouldn't do it. All right, next one. Noir. Here we go. I'm a testosterone non-responder. Would a 100 to 150 milligrams testosterone for the estrogen and 250 to 375 deca a week plus 10, 10 milligram VAR cycle be worth a shot? Uh, yes, I'm not against it. Uh, but what, when you say testosterone non-responder, do you mean you get uncontrollable side effects or you simply don't get the anabolic response that you're after? Um, so if you get uncontrollable side effects, but you still get an anabolic response, I would, yeah, 100, 150 milligrams of test just for the estrogen, but you could get the same effect from HCG. And, and at least you keep your nuts active that way. So maybe you do 1,000 IOs HCG or 500 IOs HCG three times a week and then DECA on top and then 10 milligrams, um, you know, with that for the collagen synthesis in synergy with the nandrolone for joint protection through the lubrication of the synovial fluid in uh, your joints. All right, that will be my approach. Uh, but if you didn't respond to testosterone from an anabolic perspective, you probably are not going to respond to nandrolone from an anabolic perspective because your diet training and overall health is off. Right? Or you, your GAC repeaters and your androgen receptors are just shit and they barely attach and barely cause any androgen-mediated gene transcription. So, yeah, uh, but it's worth, worth the trial, right? So assuming you're healthy and you're doing everything else right regarding nutrition, training, and supplementation, um, then I think it's worth a shot. Yeah, but you could replace the testosterone with ATG and, um, you know, keep your nuts active. Or do like 50 milligrams of test and, and 250 IOs ATG three times a week. All right, give that a, give that a trial run. Running 540 milligrams testosterone, 300 milligrams Primo, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, injection protocol, or uh, this is per shot, All right? That's 1,500 tests, 900 Primo. Either way, it's probably 540 tests, 300 Primo weekly, split up Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, having erection issues and trouble maintaining it, what to do regarding this? Blood work. Blood work could be hyperlactin, could be low estrogen, could be high estrogen, could be inflammatory response due to the carrier oil. Maybe you're not eating correctly. Maybe you're zinc deficient because you're not supplementing with micronutrients uh, on top of this increased androgenic and anabolic burden that you subject yourself to. So uh, get some diagnoses done and then see what's going on. And then uh, with that blood work, watch the libido videos. They uh, contain everything you need to know to restore your libido. But with this, I can't really give you advice because um, this cycle seems fine to me. Um, and it could be a longer list of issues that is going on. So do blood work and then take it from there. Jason Middelkauf became a YouTube member. Welcome to the Vigorous Crew, bro. Thank you for joining. Uh, Zane, is Clomid inferior to Enclomiphene? Is there a scenario where Clomid would be better? Um, well, there's more scientific literature on Clomid, um, but most of the side effects from Clomid are allegedly coming from the Zuclomiphene. Again, there's very little uh, comparative study comparing Zuclomiphene or enclomiphene regarding the side effects and the IGF-1 reduction and the clotting risk. Um, so with enclomiphene, you can expect similar side effects as enclomid, but anecdotally, people respond to it better because they have less mental side effects. 
Um, and I think dose by dose, like if you run 25 milligrams clomid and 25 milligrams inclomiphene, I think luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone levels would be similar. Um, but since there's no comparative results regarding clotting risks and IGF-1 reduction and all the negative side effects, um, I would still inject ATG and FSH. And trust me, dude, if inclomiphene was the way to go or inclomid was the way to go, I would be doing it right now. It's easy. You take a tablet before bed and you shut the fuck up. But with the clotting risk and the side effects with long-term selective estrogen receptor modulators, um, I feel that the more expensive and the more cumbersome approach is the more healthy approach. So, you know, but take that uh, for all it's worth. It's not like I know what I'm talking about. And it's not like my fertility levels are fucking insane. Uh, let's see. MK. Thanks. I have Fostimon follicle stimulating hormone by by Ipsa, not Gonal F. Okay, perfect. Uh, how should I dose it with the HCG? Would HMG work? And if so, what dose? Any side effects of FSH? Yeah, the wallet will be drained. <laughs> no, but I, I, dude, I've been on FSH for months now, and it's uh, the only thing that I notice is that my wallet is not happy. So it's very expensive. Uh, luckily, anabolic pharmacist uh, throws me, uh, you know, a couple pens of FSH here and there. Uh, because I do have a good uh, referral, uh, you know, program in place. Um, so, yeah, if you want your FSH, anabolic pharmacist has got you covered. And if I do have a kid, then un uh, uncle anabolic pharmacist um, would be uh, christened in as, uh, yeah, one of the driving factors, just like he was for uh, Chase Irons as his wife pregnancy. Um, so if you have Fostimon FSH, that's fine. Uh, it's a Is that recombinant or urine purified? That I'm not sure. Um, but HMG is urine purified, and it uh, also contains FSH. But I feel that 75 IUs of FSH from HMG brings my serum levels to lower levels compared to recombinant FSH from gonal F produced by Merck. So 2.5 IUs uh, or milli IUs per milliliter with HMG versus about 4 to 5 milli IUs per milliliter with recombinant FSH. What do you think is going to make your fertility levels better? Recombinant FSH. I mean, my fertility parameters are as follows. Um, per ejaculate, 550 million sperm as of last time checking. Uh, let's see. It's about four and a half milliliters or five milliliters. I can't really remember, but it was uh, substantial. Yeah, the, the concentration per milliliter. Uh, very high morphology, very high progressive motility, uh, low DNA fragmentation. So I'm well beyond the... Um, new capabilities of producing a child. But again, you know, when you're 40 years old, the, you know, the chances of, uh, you know, uh, getting your wife pregnant is, let, let's say, 5% when you're 40 years old. I think it's 20% when you're 30 years old and 5% when you're 40 years old. So uh, it's still going to take a while. And if it doesn't happen within a year, then uh, we might have to do IVF, right? So, and it sucks that it takes so long, but... I guess that's uh, jokes on me, right? I, I want to be financially secure. I want to be financially secure. And then you're fucking financially secure. And then it still takes a year. Of course, I can make myself less financially secure by just going the IVF route. But I will say that we're having a lot of fun, uh, you know, conceiving. <laughs> so why, uh, you know, like when, when my wife is pregnant, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure the desire to conceive uh, would be less because I don't know. It's just that mentally it's not right. Putting your sexual organs that close to a child. 
the mentally doesn't sit well with me. So uh, I don't mind uh, um, uh, for a longer conception period uh, and then having a super healthy baby. Uh, but if it happens uh, next round, then uh, so be it. Then uh, I guess it's just uh, you and me, buddy. <laughs> yeah. All right, Ryan. Oh, what's the dose? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, 75 IOs every day brings my levels and most people's levels of a follicle-stimulating hormone in serum to about the middle of the reference range. So 75 IOs um, every other day would be about 2 to 3 milli IOs per milliliter and 75 IOs every single day, 4 to 5 IOs milli IOs per milliliter, which is you know a normal range for most young men, let's say between... 25 to 30 which is a good time to have kids uh from a biological perspective but of course from a mental maturity perspective and a financial perspective i mean in this day and age kids are mad expensive and and everybody's trying to you know uh, um you know take money out of you especially governments so um yeah you might have to wait a little bit longer all right ryan sorry for the delay um what would be your recommend what would you recommend for fatigue that won't show up on a comprehensive urinalysis? Uh, I train plus I have a physical job. I get a lot of fatigue. Eat more foods and try to improve your sleep quality so the time that you do sleep is improved. Um, and of course, you might want to do a Dutch urine test or a Dutch saliva test to see if some of your adrenal uh, hormones, your neurosteroids are not completely out of whack. That would be my first recommendation. Right? It might be adrenal fatigue. Or maybe you just need a week off to kind of catch up on recovery. So if you work a physical job, of course, you're moving all the time. So your caloric expenditure is a lot higher. And thus, your caloric requirement and especially micronutrient requirement is going to be a lot higher. You need to make sure that you stay hydrated. You need to make sure that you stay on top of your electrolytes. This is what I usually did with all of my uh, former clients that did physical jobs plus training on the side. Um you know, you just need to eat more food and high quality food, which means it's taking away from your physical job because you need to eat every three hours and maybe pee every one and a half hours because you need to hydrate yourself, especially if you do a physical job in a place where you're um, sweating all the time, uh, keeping your electrolytes up, obviously. And then if you train at the end of the day or, or ideally before your physical job, wake up early, get your training out of the way first, and then do the physical job where all the nutrients are flowing in and, you know, you're dispersing that throughout your body uh, by staying active and improving blood flow. Um, yeah, so you just uh, need to attack it from all angles. And then I would not add in insulin, growth hormone, or Ancrelect or IGF-1 on top of that because they make you feel a little bit more sleepy, a little bit more sedated. Um, but I would you know, add in compounds that are slightly more stimulatory, that is testosterone and DHT derivatives, uh, and perhaps HCG. Right, so maybe growth hormone before bed to improve sleep quality, but insulin I would not do with a physical job unless it's like a low dose basal insulin, five to ten. I use Atlantis again, buy the insulin ebook or hire somebody to guide you through that process because insulin use is more complicated than I'm making it sound out to be. Um, and uh, and maybe it's just time for a holiday, dude. But I had a lot of fatigue this week because when I went to the United States, I had no days off, fifteen to twenty five thousand steps per day. And then training on top of that and uh, talking all the time. So last week was a week off for me. Yeah, I only went to the gym once. I did full body workout. And guess what? I'm sore as shit. Sucks. Uh, bleachy. Let me sip some hydro. Mm. 
38 years old, 185 centimeters tall, lost 20 kilos from 150 kilos. That's a big boy. So you're still 130. Um, I would running the entrepreneur stack, testosterone recipient plus one IU growth hormone help with the cut, or do I need to lose more body fat before starting? Well, at that height, you're probably still 20% body fat over 130 kilos. So just keep in mind that if you have high blood pressure now, it will probably get worse on testosterone. If you have water retention now, it will probably get worse on this combination of testosterone and growth hormone, even if you put tomosartan and aromacin in place to control your estrogen and your blood pressure, um, simply because you're higher body weight and you just lost 20 kilos. So you have a lot of this um, loose skin and adipose tissue that still needs to retract. So honestly, I would bring your weight down to 110 kilos, or at least to the point you see your abs properly and you have some veins on your upper body, right? Your shoulders, your arms, your chest. So they're not being compressed by the body fat and that your blood pressure is not going to get worse. Of course, the, you know, you can always run an aromatized inhibitor to kind of prevent the conversion of testosterone into estrogen, which is certainly going to take place in the body fat when you've been higher body fat levels. Um, and that being said, you know, if you lost 20 kilos and you go on this protocol now, you'll probably gain five to seven kilos of muscularity and water retention, even if you control your estrogen and um, blood pressure with aromacin and talmasartan. So my recommendation would be to get leaner first. Um, you can still go on the entrepreneur stack, but just skip the testosterone cypionate and the growth hormone. But if you don't want to wait, if you feel that it's going to be more beneficial, Make sure you do your blood work before. Make sure you have an aromatized inhibitor in place. Make sure you have Nolvidex in place in case of gynecomastia formation, which is more um, uh, likely if you were higher body fat. And uh, then keep cutting. Yeah, keep cutting. And wait for the next entrepreneur deep dive, which will drop before the end of the month. I promise, because I already started uh, you know, uh, preparing for the nootropic uh, side and upregulating uh, the neurotransmitters with nootropics, not nootropics, yeah, nootropics and the, uh, you know, over-the-counter supplements and, uh, you know, the building blocks for um, neurotransmitters and then how to optimize your cognition and your motivation and, uh, uh, you know, pleasure that you get out of uh, finishing medial tasks um, so that you can already incorporate, All right? And, uh, you know, dopaminergic fat loss aids are also highly productive, yeah but those might not be available in Europe or Australia. Yeah, Australia also uses centimeters and kilograms, right? Uh, what is a good energy product productivity stack that... Uh, what is a good energy and productivity stack? I've tried some max and Selank, Adderall, Modafinil. What would you say is the best route for energy? Um... Man, I mean, there's something to say for all of those. If you do Samax in the morning or Selenk in the morning and Samax in the afternoon or vice versa, I like Samax nasal sprays in the morning and then Selenk uh, subcutaneous in the afternoon. And then, of course, Adderall and Modafinil is going to give you productivity, somewhat energy stimulation, right? Uh, at a low dose, 2.5, 500 grams Adderall and maybe 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams Modafinil upon waking. Uh, but the best energy you would get is, uh, you know, by mitochondrial upregulation with nicotinamide mononucleotides, NAD+, uh, B vitamins, 
vitamin C ubiquinol, right? What I mentioned in the mitochondrial support stack, which is actually the foundation of the optimized endurance stack and the optimized entrepreneurial stack. Um, so I would look into upregulating mitochondrial function by watching the mitochondrial su um, support video and, uh, and then look into adding in one of these nootropics for productivity on top. So for energy, mitochondrial upregulation and for productivity, Samaxilank, Adderall, um, you know, Modafinil, Cerebralisin, and SSRI. Again, we'll document all of that in the Entrepreneur Deep Dive video series. uh let's see oh man it's a lot of a lot of comments in the meantime sorry guys um let's see hope chat will remain clean don't forget to subscribe and like boys almost 100k spread the word yeah oh here we go andrew you want to come on a podcast with me soon Man medicine, troubled my count with HCG and FSH, but still had to do IVF. It's expensive, but worth it. Okay, so now we have uh, something in common more than our testosterone replacement therapy. Andrew, uh, shoot me a message on DM while we're doing this podcast, uh, while we're doing this live stream. Let's, let's just get it started because I fucking like your content because it's long and in-depth, and that's what the women like us, all right? Long and deep. Um, but for us men, we like long and deep content and conversations also. So let's set it up. Um, and that logo is fucking epic because it makes me think of Berserk. Let's see, Berserk. Is that the same logo? Oh, what's it? Yeah. Yeah, it's very similar to the Berserk logo. All right. Shoot me a DM. Let's get it started. Hey, Steve, I got skipped. Didn't, did I? All right. Oh, no, sorry, I did. Man, so many super chats. Uh, my bad. Bhaskar, uh, what to get on blood work to detect pregnenolone deficiency? Progesterone versus 17-hydroxyprogesterone. I have 75 milligram sustained release DHA tablets. Can this be done every other day? Didn't I just uh, answer this question similarly? So um, check your pregnenolone, check your pregnenolone sulfate. And then uh, what was the one? I think it's 17-hydroxyprogesterone comes after progesterone but let me check the steroid cascade can't really remember which one comes first where is it why most people don't do live streams we get guess they get stumped all the time and then they don't want to look stupid like i am by <laughs> having to fucking google these things <laughs> terrible all right pregnenolone through 17 alpha hydroxylase goes into 17 alpha hydroxypregnenolone and then uh, but directly into progesterone through the three beta hydroxy steroid dehydrogenase enzyme so um, just check your progesterone because 17 alpha hydroxyprogesterone comes after progesterone. So if you want to check if your uh, pregnenolone levels are too low, um, pregnenolone, obviously, or 17 alpha hydroxypregnenolone, not progesterone, uh, or pregnenolone sulfate or progesterone. 
one or several of these if it is available. But in most labs, it's just a progesterone. So what I usually do is if progesterone is high and you're not on nandrolone, uh, then it's very likely that your progesterone intake is a little bit, or pregnenolone intake, pregnenolone intake is too high as well. So I was on pregnenolone. I did my blood work before and after. I'll drop a video about this uh, next week. So before and after the USA, and I was on 12.5 milligrams pregnenolone the entire way through. Um, but my progesterone levels went to 0.25, which I prefer to have it around 0.1. Um, so I'm going to retest it about a month from now in the same pregnenolone protocol, because it might mean that my pregnenolone dose right now is too high for the activity and the metabolism and all that stuff that I have, or simply because I came off nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide plus administrations while in the US, the enzymatic reactions which contribute to the um, breakdown or the metabolism of pregnenolone into 17-alpha-hydroxy uh, pregnenolone or deoxycorticosterone is not sufficient enough, right? So uh, I'm just going to keep my protocol the same, but reintroduce my regular diet protocol and, and, and lifting strategy and supplementation protocol, and then see if my uh, progesterone levels are still too high, and otherwise I'm going to make an adjustment. So again, with 75 milligrams sustained release DHEA tablets, I would just uh, dissolve it and then administer 25 milligrams per time. But DHEA, um, of course, doesn't convert into progesterone. It would just convert more into testosterone, which isn't the end of the world. All right, where were we? All right. Logan Braden, what's your thoughts on RU58841, the number that I always keep forgetting, and or low-dose oral minoxidil for hair loss? Yeah, so I think the combination of RU58841 and uh, minoxidil topically, or ketoconazole, works quite well. But I would not do oral minoxidil or oral ketoconazole because... Oral ketoconazole is a very potent uh, inhibitor of the, um, you know, neurosteroid and sex hormone cascade, inhibits aromatized enzyme activity and the conversion of uh, neurosteroids into sex hormones. And it's, I mean, it's a horrible compound for systemic use. I would only use it if you have some sort of infection, right? So um, minoxidil, ketoconazole and RU58841 or a topical detastrite for that matter can all be mixed together at low dosages and then use topically in the scalp to block the androgen receptors and prevent the conversion of testosterone into dihydrotestosterone by inhibiting alpha reductase um, isoenzyme type 2. So uh, that would be a logical approach, but I would not do oral minoxidil or oral kinoconazole because the side effects are pretty brutal from what I've seen. Yeah, so do topically. But I'm not exactly sure what the, the dosages are going to be because I'm obviously not a hair loss expert. I mean, look at this. Look at how much hair I have, and I trimmed it yesterday. I mean, I shaved yesterday, I trimmed yesterday. It just grows like crazy. It's all the collagen supplements that I'm taking. Yeah, people shit on collagen, and then they want to use RU58841, um, you know, to prevent hair loss, when in reality, you could just be supplementing with a little bit of collagen and, uh, and, and get, uh, you know, hair growth uh, through that route, because collagen is the foundation for keratin, which is the building block for hair. All right. Timothy Munoz, for the first time, few enhanced bulks, should you push your body weight to the point you look pretty fat? Uh, it's going to happen anyway. So why fight it? Just let it happen. 
just let it happen. Um, because if you stay lean, you're not going to put on that much size. And, you know, the first few bulks, you can get away with a lot less compared comparatively to uh, the later bulks when you need more steroids to elicit more of an anabolic response because the muscle that you already have is is taking a certain amount of anabolism from the steroids that you're taking and the food that you're taking in to sustain itself and to progress beyond that you need more food and more steroids uh, or at least synergy between a boatload of different performance enhancing drugs so uh yeah i would just let your body weight go up high i mean that's what i did of course we didn't have social media that we needed to look good in uh, but i think my first couple of bulks were very successful because i just ate 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 and didn't give a flying fuck and still got laid yeah Albeit it was with fatties also because I was fat, so they were fat. Yeah. Yeah. Shame on me. Um, but of course, if you're on social media making money, then uh, it's, it pays off to be leaner. And in that sense, uh, the bulk can be a good return of investment, even if the dosages are higher because you can afford it because you make money. And you can do the blood work because you make money. And, uh, you know, staying leaner will obviously get you laid faster. So, uh, but then you might have to, you know, spend money on, uh, you know, STD drugs. Also, unless you're wrapping it up. Man, we, got, we went south fast. <laughs> All right, man, medicine approved. And honestly, I should have gotten you on earlier, but you already went on the TRT and optimization uh, uh, YouTube channel. So, too bad. Well... Don't worry, I'll expose you to my audience soon. All right, let's uh, let's set it up, dude. I love your content. Uh, let's see. Where were we? No, you recommend fasted cardio year round. What heart rate do you also recommend? Uh, I just answered this: 125 to 135 beats per minute. Uh, it should be a little bit strenuous, but whatever. Um, Whatever machine you do is uh, up to you because some machines are better for your heart rate, but worse for your connective tissue and your uh, recovery on your legs and vice versa, right? Some, some machines are better for your lower body and then uh, still raise your heart rate quite a bit. So I like the elliptical, but maybe it's a Stairmaster for you. Thoughts on injectable GHK copper? I can't seem to find anything definitive regarding its effect on skin improvements or anything uh, uh, on any, any other purported benefits so i ran ghk copper from two milligrams up to 10 milligrams per day i did it subcutaneously i did it topically i did it intramuscularly uh i still had gray hairs my skin didn't improve but my skin is pretty good because you know i'm on top of my collagen supplements <laughs> and uh you know i take a multivitamin with a little bit of copper and i'm on top of my vitamin c and my antioxidants and i shower like three times a day um, and I'm hygienic overall, and I'm in a micronutrient surplus. So GHK copper on top of all of that didn't do jack shit for me. Uh, for me, my hair growth's perfectly fine. I don't have any hair loss, so I can't say that GHK copper um, improved hair growth in any way, shape, or form. Um, but what I will say, what I will vouch for, is that localized GHK copper injections in weaker muscle groups um assuming you can uh, you know fight the post-injection pain which is brutal um it's very good for side enhancement again for smaller body parts so i was able to improve my teardrops on my legs and the outer heads or the yeah the outer head of my tricep quite a bit 
with post-workout GHK copper administrations of five milligrams bilaterally, so that's 10 milligrams total, and then just strategically moving that around to induce a little bit of localized collagen synthesis, which over time uh, added up to quite a bit. Was it worth the pain? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Could I have gotten the same effect from Incrolex administrations locally? Potentially. But at the time, I didn't have access to Incrolex. Um, so, you know, maybe do that experiment again. But then again, I'm relying on muscle memory. So the only real application for GHK Copper, from my personal experience, is either site enhancement um, or potentially hair growth. But then I would recommend palmitate GHK, which permeates uh, in, permeates into the skin, uh, the palmitic acid contained within the GHK, uh, and it doesn't have the copper, so it might be less potent for collagen synthesis. But it does seem to permeate the skin a lot better than GHK copper by itself, which the molecule I think is a little bit too big. But I could be mistaken there. So, um, yeah, but. Uh, you know, gray hairs, skin texture. Maybe I'll run that experiment again when I'm old as balls and I'm 80 years old. Maybe it will be, you know, a world of difference. But at 40 years old, I can't really say that it did much for anti-aging purposes. Uh, King David, I really like your entrepreneur uh, stack video on the TRT Plus format. My question is, how big of a psychological difference do you notice from 90 levels to of test compared to 1500 nanograms per deciliter. It's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. Although I did speak to an entrepreneur not too long ago during a consultation that said he got nothing out of exogenous testosterone, but his testosterone levels went up quite high. So he went on TRT plus, um, but he was already motivated and already in a good mood. So he said he didn't notice anything from a cognition or productivity or mood enhancing different so i told him stop it cold turkey and see what happens um you'll probably feel quite low maybe the, 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 for him what i speculated is that his change was so gradual right he started at 100 milligrams and then build his way up per week i think he just slowly and surely increased his testosterone levels to the point it felt normal each increment because again these these hormones are self-tapering so if you take testosterone annotate it takes like four weeks before serum concentrations reach peak levels so you take a multitude of administrations and after or 30 days uh levels might be double but it feels the same because it took such a long time right the the, the change is gradual i mean if you take like a thousand micrograms lsd the change is very ungradual it's just it's acute and you definitely feel it but i think if you slowly built it up after a month uh, you probably think that that's the normal way of life. <laughs> I don't do that, obviously, but you see the difference, right? So if you inject, uh, you know, a gram of test in one shot, you will surely feel a difference. But if you build up your dosages, you might just acclimatize to these increased serum testosterone levels. But for most people, going from 600 to 1500 nanograms per deciliter, night and day in all aspects. Yeah. Might come with some side effects, obviously, but that's the nature of the beast. Logan, got blood work done. Everything is in range except for thyroid stimulating hormone. It was high and over the range. Getting more blood work done to check. I'm 21 years old. Is it nutrient deficiency? Uh, could be. Could be early onset of Hashimoto's disease. 
Um, so please do some additional testing and make sure that you supplement with iodine and selenium, which might be able to bring your thyroid stimulating hormone down because you need iodine for uh, thyroid production, particularly T4, which contains four iodine atoms and T3 contains three iodine atoms. And it's a deiodinase enzymes, as the name implies, deiodinase, A stands for enzyme. So it cleaves one iodine atom off the T4 and makes the, um, the biologically inactive T4 active in the form of T3, right? So from four to three iodine atoms. But you still need um, adequate iodine intake from kelp or iodized table salts or... Um, uh, man, that's, that's about it, right? What, what else is high in uh, iodine? Maybe some food sources are a little bit higher, but kelp and iodine from table salts, that's probably the best way to go. Um, and then you need selenium, which is part of the deiodinase enzymes. So you can get that from um, animal meat sources, very high in selenium or selenium, however the fuck you want to pronounce it. So a bro food diet, um, you know, eating a lot of sushi rolls, of course, don't eat so much tuna because tuna has mercury and that's not good for you either. Um, so basically, uh, long story short, you eat bro foods and you salt that with iodized table salts. You get a lot of selenium and a lot of iodine in your diet. And if TSH is still in, uh, still high, uh, then check your thyroid uh, peroxidase and reverse T3 and um, thyroid binding globulins and then see if more things are off besides your TSH. And then maybe do an ultrasound on your thyroid gland here just to see if it's not inflamed or there's not a nodule or any other structural issue besides inflammation. And then uh, take it from there, right? There's a multitude of different solutions for every uh, different thing that is going on. But if it's a, a micronutrient deficiency, it's either iodine or selenium. And to a certain extent, B vitamins um, contribute to thyroid production as well. D3. That's an oral BPC for gut issues. Uh, works well. Yeah, one gram or 500 micrograms orally once or twice per day. Or can I put injectable into capsules? Uh, you can do that also. Can't seem to find oral. So yeah, if you if you can't find oral, um, uh, let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> if you can't find oral BPC, actually they do sell it, man. They sell it on most of the gray area peptide websites. To search harder, D3, search better. Um, anyway, so you can you can just reconstitute your BPC one five seven and and uh, transfer that from your vial with bacteriostatic water into um, I don't know drinking water and just drink that on an empty stomach and then wait thirty minutes for that to kind of absorb and pass your intestinal tract and then start potentiating its effects locally before you eat food again. So yeah, uh, if you want to put the injectable into capsules, it's a little bit difficult because the injectable needs to be reconstituted with water, sterile water, bacteriostatic water, or a normal saline solution, which just contains sodium chloride. So, um, and, and that's a bit hard to dissolve in capsules when capsules or suspending capsules when capsules generally dissolve when you add water to them. So, and you don't want to crack open the vial and start slicing up the puck. It's, it's not going to work. Don't do it. So uh, reconstitute it and then take what you need, uh, dissolve it in uh, just drinking water, slam it, and you'll be okay. All right. No more super chats. We're going to wrap it up because I have to go to the bathroom. 
So after this, no more super chats. We're going to answer two more questions from the boss man. How long should I run trimalone acetate and testosterone propionate? Uh, Cycle coach says eight weeks only, but I feel like anything under 12 weeks is not effective results wise. So uh, you can run the testosterone propionate for as long as you like. And then you add in the trimalone acetate at the end. Um, could be the last eight weeks or six weeks of your cycle. So if you want to run a 16 or 20 weeks, uh, 26 week cycle, let's say six uh, months, uh, I'm totally okay with that. If it's just testosterone propionate with masterone or primo, that's totally fine. Uh, assuming the dose is too uh, low enough for you to stay healthy and you do your blood work frequently. But as soon as you add in the trembolone sandwich, uh, within six to eight weeks, your cycle is going to end because trembolone is just hard on your system and you need a little bit of a detoxification protocol and a reset after you're done with the trembolone, unless you're really, really experienced and you have all the ancillaries and the blood work and the preventative measures in place. I'm not against running trembolone acetate, a low dose offer up to 16 weeks, but that's not for beginners. And then we're talking about 50 to 70 milligrams trembolone acetate per week. So uh, get all the results you can out of a long, uh, long low dose cycle of testosterone propionate, maybe bring up the dosages over time as needed. And then if you wanna close off your cycle with a bang, throw in the trembolone sandwich, and then I call it quits from uh, after six to eight weeks. Unbelievable, dude, this button. <laughs> so sensitive. It's like right here on the side. Like if I press one of these, it just hits the back button. My apologies. All right, last one. Kratos, what's up, dude? You're in here every week. For IGF-1, if one have, has access to alloglyptin, okay, let, let me make sure that I'm uh, uh, getting the right one this time, not being, uh, yeah, D-peptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitor, not uh, uh, sodium and glucose type 2 inhibitor. Okay, D-peptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitor. Would it be better than Genuvia because of the longer half-life? Also, what dose uh, does it equal to 100 milligrams Genuvia? So I'm not exactly sure what the half-life is, but let me uh, Google that real quick. Uh, let me see. I like the ones with shorter half-lives. Oh, it's 21 hours. Okay. So you can only take uh, alloglyptin in the morning. Of course, IGF-1 LR3 is a pretty long half-life. Um, you know, um, allegedly up to 36 hours. So the alloglyptin matches the half-life of IGF-1 a little bit closer, but since uh, alloglyptin being a D-peptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitor also preventing the breakdown of insulin, if insulin levels are higher throughout the night and uh, IGF-1 levels are higher throughout the night and you don't manage your food properly, then uh, you might go hypoglycemic. So this is why I usually recommend shorter-acting uh, D-peptidyl uh, peptidase inhibitors like uh, Genuvia um, being cetagliptin, right? Cetagliptin. Uh, yeah, that's eight of, oh, that's eight to 14 hours. Uh, so it's a little bit shorter. And sexagliptin, I think, has a shorter half-life. I think I mentioned it's in the World, World Anti-Doping Agency. Sex. Uh, Lipton half-life medications. 
I wish there was an overview somewhere. I don't have all my. Oh, do I? I probably have my notes here. Fuck it. Let me let me go into my notes. Uh, let's see the insulin ebook. I think. Where is it? Final. Oh, it's a uh, off-season protocols to prevent insulin resistance. I think it's in there. Glipton. All right, so. Alloglipton, 21-hour half-life, 25 milligrams once per day is the starting dose, which is, uh, I list here, Genuvia, Citagliptin, uh, is 100 milligrams per day as a starting dose. So I would do 25 milligrams of the Alloglipton in this case. Right, that's what we're talking about, right? Alloglipton, 25 milligrams once per day upon waking. And then... Um, Let's see, the cetagliptin, anything with a shorter half-life, this vildagliptin, it's only 1.3 to 2.4 hours, 50 milligrams once or twice daily, of course, because of the short half-life. Um, it goes very well with Eumolog, um, uh, obviously, and, uh, and IGF-1-DES, so you got it in and out of your system. And then uh, sexagliptin, so that's not sexam or sexagliptin, Ongliza, half-life of 2.5 to 3.1 hours. That's only 2.5 to 5 milligrams once or twice daily. And then uh, this one has an unknown half-life. Berberine, also a deep peptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitor with a half-life of 2 to 5 hours. 500 milligrams once, twice daily. And then the longest one with a half-life of 120 hours is or Omari Glipton, brand name Mari Ziff, and um, uh, let's see, MK3102 as a, uh, you know, number, research number. Omari Glipton, Mari Ziff. So yeah, in your case, alloglipton, 25 milligrams once per day upon waking. That will be the starting dose, and then uh, adjust from there. All right, let's throw in a towel. I got to peel real bad. And uh, I was drawing a blank today at certain periods of time. Did I miss any super chats? No, right? All right, cool. All right, guys, uh, stay tuned for podcasts coming soon with uh, Mr. Andrew from Man Medicine. I think I'll, and, uh, and some more very cool podcasts coming soon. So for now, we're out of time. Peace out. Next week, Vickers Q&A again, again on Saturday. Hopefully this microphone and all the setup will be absolutely flawless by the time for the best audio quality. Sorry it took so long, but um, yeah, sometimes I'm a little bit busy to take care of other stuff that uh, I keep procrastinating about. So anyway, thank you guys so much, so much for watching. We'll see you in the next Vickers Q&A on Saturday. Peace out and enjoy your weekend.